Why We Bleep is sponsored by Signal Sounds. Have I told you about my pen pal? The shopkeep up in Glasgow. I like to send him emails. And I ask him what's the strangest thing he sold that week. He then makes up a completely ridiculous concept and he sends it back to me. Must be something in the water, because he's very good at it. This week, he claimed that a Portuguese sound and media artist shipped him a Eurorack module which creates control voltages based on the physics of a marble rolling around on a table. He followed that with a module which converts your heartbeat into a clock and voltage source. And finally, a module that allows you to manually starve the voltage supplied to two other modules until those modules begin to go berserk. They also receive patch cables made of gold and the Bleep Labs Deladius 2 Banana Jack Bonkers Desktop Delay and Sampler collab between Bleep Labs and Daedalus, the 18th century dandy chap who makes hip-hop on Ninja Tune. I do enjoy our conversations, but I think Jason's marbles have been rolling around on the table a little too much. So, for all your extremely weird but actually real synth, desktop effects and modular needs, visit Signalsounds.com. That is Signalsounds.com. world. I hope you're okay. You're okay. I hope you're not ill. Are you ill? Don't be ill. I hope you're not ill. If you're ill, I hope you're okay. Thank you for being patient while I make more podcasts. I've been managing my life. We are putting together our house and things are happening. And in my new house, I'm going to have a new studio and it's going to be glorious. But I hope you're okay. I think things are going to get worse a lot worse, before they get better. So I trust that you are well, safe, and keeping a distance. As electronic musicians, we are uniquely placed to self-isolate, although we do sometimes have families. So I hope that you are looking after yours, or they're looking after you. And thus, again, a chat. We have a chat today with Mr. Music Thing. Despite it being March when this is released, this announces a third year of bleeping podcasts. This is the third time I have sat down with Tom Whitwell in his shed in Hernhill to talk about stuff. And of course, just like the previous chat, there isn't really an agenda, although there kind of has been. Aside from this whole viral thing, previous to the viral thing, there was a, a slight thing about a thing. There was a company who published the thing and that thing got a lot of news recently um, and that's also why this is partly taken time to edit i recorded this just before christmas uh, around about the day i saw that a company announced a curvy injection molded eurorack case with three amps of power in three zones along with a kickstand that in my entirely personal opinion strongly reminds me of the form factor and power features of the tip-top audio mantis curvy injection molded case with a kickstand that also has three amps of power distributed in three zones but of course that tip-top case is prohibitively expensive it's a barrier 
to entry. But a Mantis case costs less than a Mimeophone. So on what planet is that expensive? I think we have IKEA to blame. And the fact that we misjudged the size of the market and many other factors. So once again, the B word has been in the news. And this time, courtesy of the whole cork sniffer thing, which has really added to my opinions of the company. And I'd like to take this opportunity to say something, which is that I believe nobody can reasonably argue that a lack of access to technology or vintage synthesizers is holding back anyone's creativity who truly wants to make music. Every single one of us listening to this now is listening to it through a computer or through a phone capable of limitless musical experimentation and joy using software that is either free, completely free or insanely cheap that could be made tactile by a MIDI controller or two costing less than a computer game or with a hardware synth which you could buy for less than the price of a games console or even actually the price of a game. Audio interfaces, synthesizers, microphones are made in their thousands at any and all price points. And they have been for many years by many different companies. From Korg's Monotron to the Tribe, to a whole era of Volkers, decades of MFB analog synths, the MS-20 Mini, to everything Dupfer have ever made and make, from the Mini Brute, to the Micro Brute, to the Micro Freak, Minotaur, the Workstat, the Model 15 app, and every single piece of software that Archeria and others have ever made. There are an ocean of options available to you as a musician, both new and old, and especially secondhand. I think a little money goes a long way in music making and has done over the last 15 years. And all from companies where I don't need to enter a moral K-hole while I watch one of their launch videos. Anyhow... I hope you'll enjoy the Hangout with Tom. We do indeed talk a little bit about this B word, of which Tom has a very good take. And moving on, and by way of exclusive, Tom also reveals a host of interesting things, music things, that he has been working on and tinkering with over this last year. Not all of which are modules. So it is a little bit of a reveal fest. And unfortunately, even in the video, you can't really get a good look at all of these things, but we do talk about what they are. So he has got stuff up his sleeves. Appropriately also, we chat about the costs of modules. We actually genuinely get into like how much would these new things actually cost him to produce so we can start thinking about, you know, are you being overcharged? What does that actually mean? We also talk about the National Grid, visiting an anechoic chamber, Marta Salogny's studio, about getting up at six o'clock in the morning and shitposting. But don't worry, not in that order. I will talk more after the podcast. But first, let's talk to Tom. Thanks. So it's been... This is now the third year that we have sat together. I think it's quite sweet, really. And last year it was exactly the same... Day. It was the 15th last was year. Was it? Yeah. 15th of December? I think so. You checked your diary. So it's all after, yeah, it's just after your Christmas party. Mm. And my Christmas party. That makes sense. <laughs> We're always ever so slightly hungover. We have these conversations. Um, and it's obviously like, yeah, it's been like three years of a podcast, but it's also been 10 years. 10. We're now entering the 20s, the roaring 20s. Yes. Which is quite a weird thought. I was looking at. Um, 
Beringer again was <laughs> a topic that we talked about yeah. last year. But it made me laugh because I was like, what did Tom say about Beringer in the music thing days? And it was 2008. It was nearly... Yeah. Or, it was 10 years ago. Yeah. It was basically 10 years ago. At least, yeah. And I, you obviously... Well, that was the... Yeah, when I did that, I did April Fool, yes. which was Beringer releases a... I can't remember what I said the price was. Something like a £250 mini Moog. Yeah. And a two hundred and fifty pound um, synthy AKS, and so so Uli, if you are listening, we would like the synthy. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. I mean, if you actually produce that, we will stop complaining about the clones. I think that I have such you know, and I've been voicing my opinions about this. I mean, I think I actually cut out a lot of what we complain about, yeah. or I was sort of my my pissing and moaning from last year. I was just yeah. like it's. Because I recognise that people just don't want to hear it. People, no. It is a really weird situation where I feel, without sort of being like an armchair philosopher, that, that the sort of Beringer thing does. It reminds me of a lot of things that are happening in the world. It has echoes of the sort of political. There are certain things that I have seen him post. That kind of you know shit posting that, that is a very disconcerting. It's very disconcerting when people do it. You yeah, know, I, I literally had, you know, during the election, I had my son coming and showing me a, a Conservative Party post that says, vote Conservatives in Comic Sans. <laughs> and he was just like, he couldn't, he, and I couldn't really, he couldn't understand what, what it meant, what was, the, what was the point of it. And the point is to get a reaction. You know, he looked at it, he reacted to it, he was showing me it. People would have shared it. People have tweeted about it. People, and he was like, "But why have they made it look bad?" Because how they did it, know, they, and it was by them. It's a they proper did. Conservative Party thing, you know. And, and it, that was that was one of the lessons I think from the was it New Zealand or the Australian election where they, they they learned a lot of that stuff of just if you do something that is deliberately that is deliberately terrible, it can be really successful because people pay attention people to just it, go like, and your supporters aren't going to carry the way your opponents are going to get infuriated and mad and do crazy things or they will go maybe if they will they will go we have to be really really um sincere and serious and and just focus on our policies yeah really straight down the line meanwhile you're having fun you're putting stuff out your supporters get the joke your opponents get angry and mm. And become more and more earnest, and go yeah. more and more and more about their policies. Yeah, which which and alienates, just alienates the, everyone. Yeah. So, so it was, but it's a very disconcerting. I mean, it all comes from that Russian stuff. There's that amazing. There's a book called um, uh, I think it's I can't remember exactly. It's by Peter Pomerantsev. It's a book called something like Everything Is True and Nothing Is Real, or something like that. Mm. And it's all about that that Russian thing where they will have. Uh, propaganda channels that just say everything is terrible. So they will say there is much more crime in Russia than there really is. There is much more chaos in Russia than there really is. Because the answer to that is you need a strong man. The answer is not, mm. well, our leaders can't be any good. So it's really interesting that, you know, it's just it's a completely different way of understanding the world from the sort of what we grew up with, really. Yeah. It's the, I was reading the the Create Digital Music post where he's talking about, you know, the whole Behringer thing. And it's the sort of phrase that he used, which sort of slightly alarmed me, but is true, is where he says, you know, they have managed to control the narrative yeah. and, and rewrite what... The, 
that basically what they have done is made everyone forget that they did not invent cheap synths. Yes. People now think that Behringer invented cheap yeah. synths, unaware that actually that was something that a number of other companies have done in the last 10 years, actually. Yeah, I and mean, I bought in something like 2010, probably, an MFB Synth 2, which is a German company, Manfred, what can we name in Germany, Manfred. Berlin. Uh, and it is entirely a mini moog clone it's a small it's got mm. three oscillators yeah, 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 I remember that. it's you know and was really, had a little sequence built into it and it was really nice and i think they cost about 350 400 pounds and completely boutique completely you know handmade mm. and like anyone else made clearly made cheaply you know it's got mm. cheap pots on it, it's got a cheap plastic box because it has to be and because the electronics isn't the isn't the expensive bit yeah um, it's the it's the hardware around it. Yeah. Which we must return to because I have a very good example of that. Of the hardware? Of the difference between... In fact, I'll show, show you now this, this Tell me thing. So, Just for, for those who are listening, yeah. can you describe what this is? So what it visually? is, it's a kind of big-ish module. It's like 18 HP or something like that across. Yeah. Um, and all it's got on it is four knobs. Four big knobs, hmm. uh, and uh, essentially, it's it came from looking at all these teeny, teeny, tiny modules. And I have lots of kind two of teeny HP, modules, like well, two HP it. ones, or the sort of super dense, um, the the sort of where people have made these super dense like clouds or super mm. dense elements that are really useful and fit in a small case, but are quite difficult so to control. Ergonomics, yeah, yeah. And I thought it would be interesting to have something that had big knobs and put out voltages big knob energy uh, so literally you it's like it's like a midi controller for a euro rack so it's basically like four it's, master controls it's four and you can, voltage outs you can change the range oh, yeah so you can change you can have like not to five not to ten minus five to, oh, that's to good yeah, yeah, yeah um and it's got a couple of attenuators on there otherwise you can put something in and attenuate it but I found it really interesting to have one in a case because essentially you make a complicated patch, then you run a few voltages into there, mm. and then you just sit there playing with that, and yeah, you're yeah. then steering interesting things with it. It's kind of you have to just move it and see what effect it has on mm. sound. So it's, it's almost like the the journey sort of we took with with your own hardware, where people were like I don't want to be looking at the screen anymore. Yeah, this is almost a step. You know, it's like I'm just turning these and listening with my ears to see what happens to the sound. Mm. The hardware thing of it is obviously a very, very simple. So it's a, it's got a bunch of cheap. Actually, let me show you how they come. This is the PCBs. But that and that costs you know very little to produce that board. But then when you come to make the thing up, the pots on the back. Mm. So I was like, I want to have nice. This is, this is literally four knobs. They're yeah, be yeah. Quite they good they knobs. need to be good. So they're nice, fancy, expensive pots. Then the knobs on them. So this one's got the kind of, you know, big buckler ones. Yeah, yeah. That are, again, really nice to use. This one here, these pots are £15 each. Oh, my so God. So that, that has got... I was going to... I was, I that was about to... 60 quid's worth of pots, of, of knobs on it. This is so also, I don't think, don't think we'll be selling them. Do you know, I was going to tell you, I thought, I actually quite like these. are nice. They but are very good. I prefer them to these. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. They're also... How can they be £15? Pounds? 
I don't know. They're made in America. They're not very Are popular. Bakelite. They They're got Bakelite. lead in them. And the, the I don't know. Stuff. I mean, they, they, it may well just be that they are not very many of them about, and that's how much they cost. Can you comment on? Because I think this is as a manufacturer and something that I am interested in. Is it true to say that in all of Eurorack, the most expensive part is everything? Above the PCB, yeah, so i.e. the panel and this, the knobs and the sockets. So these have been built with aluminium PCB panels, which are pretty cheap. Yeah. And they don't feel, I think when we sell these, we'd sell them with proper aluminium panels. But you get these aluminium PCBs that are used for LED lighting because they act as a heat sink. Oh, okay. But you can obviously just ask them to, to do other things with them. The the So the panels, I think for a big one like this, I don't know exactly because Steve Thonk orders them. But I imagine that would be somewhere between kind of eight, maybe 15 pounds right. for just the aluminium. The pots behind the knobs are, yeah. these ones are about four pounds each because these are posh, nice ones. Maybe yeah. three or four pounds each. The switches are probably about pound or something yeah because you, know, you want decent switches and so so yeah and then the knobs these ones are ridiculously expensive these ones are still probably a few pounds each and the reason why behringer can do it so cheaply is because of this vast economies of scale so if mm. i if i'm buying you know the the circuit boards cost essentially nothing the population will cost very little the hardware if you're buying at a big enough scale will cost much less and the especially if you, if you own the equipment to like bend metal and laser yeah. cut, you know, yeah, it's sort of it's similar to what Rode do. Here we are using yeah. a Rode NTSF one. Um, the you know, Rode have invested literally millions of dollars to buy the equipment that you would yeah. otherwise have to hire, you know, the use of, yeah. And so it's hugely expensive in the, the forefront, but then you can begin to reduce down a product into its into it, its raw material cost. Yeah. You know, that, you know for the, they literally mill brass tubes to make the sort of, make shotgun mics. They're not actually yeah. buying those from another company. And so they can they can sell it a lot more cheaply, but it's still the same product. Because microphones had that incredible price drop. It used to be microphones would cost £1,000, £2,000. They'd be made in Germany. But they were made like Swiss watches. You know, yeah, exactly. made, it was a similar thing. You and know, they would have made in tiny, tiny numbers because nobody could buy a th- You know, only the BBC and recording studios mm. could buy them. And then I guess Chinese manufacturers were able to start or realised that you were able to start making them at that scale. And then suddenly uh, hobby studios would have proper condenser microphones and then mm. proper, you know, that, that equipment. So... It's. I mean, and I think no one denies that it's a, it's a wonderful and amazing thing. And we still have a market for high end microphones, just as yeah. there will be a you know there is. And that's I think is one of the interesting things is in the last few years we're actually starting to get semi high end synthesizers again, mm. which is sort of um, you know it sounds like an elitist thing to say, but it's just just a comment that the fact that we for many many years have not had no. like high end. We've we've sort of almost. You know, this industry has become, uh, you know, the effects of mass production have started to rub off on this sort of world of electronic music and and studio equipment. We have things that are cheaper than they ever were, um, vastly cheaper than they ever were. Everything is cheaper than ever. Everything is cheaper. Even even vintage synths are cheaper than they ever were when you look at inflation. Yes, they are. You know, I think think probably, I'd imagine a Mini Moog is about the same price, if not less, than it would have been when you bought it. It was, it's, I I actually worked this out. So that when Moog reissued the Mini Moog, you know, which 
you know, and then that was it was three and a half thousand pounds to yeah. buy ones. I've stopped making them, but when they, yeah. you know, it was three and a half grand. I am fairly sure, and I probably should double check my numbers, but I worked out that it was the equivalent of eight thousand to buy yeah. an original minimum. Well, that's what I mean. And actually, you can go and buy the highest end, most expensive restored vintage nineteen seventy two. Mini Moog from Soundgas for five thousand now, yeah. which is still cheaper than it's it would have still been cheaper than it was back then. Exactly, um, and you can have the app on your phone, and you can have the yes. two hundred and fifty quid mm. Behringer one. You can have whatever you've got the choice. Go uh, the other thing that gives does gives me kind of sort of confidence about this world is the um, guitar pedal world. Mm. So, in guitar pedals, you've been able to get thirty pound guitar pedals, and you've been able to get 500 pound guitar pedals with the same literal internal circuitry and there are markets for both of those yeah and the idea that you should get angry because somebody's making a 300 pound guitar pedal or you should get angry that somebody's making a 30 pound guitar pedal it's just the the scope of the market mm. you know and and the point is all of this can be done with free software on your laptop absolutely. yes absolutely and it has yeah. been for 10 15 yeah, yeah. years all of it is a luxury for music making. Absolutely, you know, is. it's a thing you want to own physically, and whether you want to own a thirty quid thing or a three hundred quid thing or a three thousand quid thing, there will be changes in the market and how the market works. But it doesn't feel like it's a fundamental, like an existential crisis for the market either way. People will go on the internet and say stupid things, and that <laughs> is not that is not that economics. Never That's not something else. That's you know, if you're somebody who has just discovered Behringer and you see a whole bunch of kind of gatekeeper older people saying, mm. oh, you, that Behringer is bad, you should do this, you will react angrily and say those people are ripping yeah, us off. Like, and and that's, you, that's not a real thing. That's just a reaction that people are going yeah, yeah. to have. Well, people just don't know, you know, no one likes being challenged. You know, it puts people on the defensive. No one likes being made to look stupid. And it's also, it's, again, it's the thing Peter Kern was saying, and I think rightly, he's, you know, it, it's this thing that if you... You know, if if you shit talk them, people probably own some of their products. I mean, you've got yeah. Behringer Cable Tester. And yeah. You know, you're effectively shaming people. Yeah. And um, I'm shaming myself about yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. But it's quite uh, happy to. But and it's... people aren't going to. They're not going to respond to you. No. You know, and they're not going to. They're going to become defensive and upset yeah. and, and justify their actions. And I, you know, the bottom line is, I can. You know, if I rewind the clock, you know, I have more disposable income than I. I did when I was 16. Yeah. You know, if I could have bought an SH-101, or even at the time, yeah. I mean, the irony is I could have bought an SH-101 at the time for about 250 quid. Yeah. But the fact that Behringer are making an SH-101 that's 250 quid and it's full size, yeah. I mean, that is amazing. Yeah, and I, that is a wonderful thing. I don't, I'm not denying that. It's just, no. unfortunately, I, I he suppose... doesn't have a sort of, there's no filter so that the, the, you know, he will make that, but then he will also literally, instead of designing his own take on the concept of a box, which is not, you know, there are options, you know, yeah. designing a box, I would say, is not the most you know, steep design challenge uh, to come up with a slightly original box. Yeah. Just, again, it's, it's guitars all along. The, the, the model is there, mm. and the model of being able to say, I can buy a mini Moog with a Moog label on it, and I can buy it for... Five hundred pounds. I can buy it for thousand pounds. I can buy it for three thousand. Oh, I do. I totally. One agree. of them's hand knitted by somebody. One of them's got forty-five quid knobs. Yeah, on Yeah, the other one's got your. The 10 other one's got on. ten-pound knobs, and one of them's got twenty p knobs, and yeah. they're all moulded so they look roughly the same. But 
the nicer ones are nicer. It's a very difficult, mm. you know, market, and it's and, and when it's filtered through the kind of internet angry filter, it becomes <laughs> tiny boutique guy in Berlin making surge modules is terrible capitalist ripping people mm. off. And guy running a, a enormous pie in China pounds. is somehow a, a you know hero. Patron saint of synthesizers, and, and neither of them are quite right. Yeah. So what have you done in the last? <laughs> let's stop talking about the <laughs> Must have been just about this time last year when we last met. Mm. You didn't have a beard as well. I didn't have a beard. I, I have, this, have grown a beard. So a more rural. Like, I don't know if you can. Oh, is this ASMR? <laughs> Well, actually, one of the things I did this year was I went to a anechoic chamber. Mm. Which is, have you ever been to anechoic? Yes, I have been. been yeah. I've been at the road factory. I stood in oh, the anechoic yeah. chamber, and it was it was. So, how deep. did you find it? Unsettling. Yeah, it's an amazing, amazing thing. Like there is nothing like it because it is just the only. I mean, the only thing that's like it is a vast open space that is completely. Yeah. You know, going to like the salt flats in Utah yeah. is, is probably the only thing. And in fact, I've known, talked to, I've been to the Genelec factory and I chatted oh, yeah. to the, one of their sort of uh, engineers. He was like, we, we test subs on the lawn because it is, yeah. there's only one boundary, yeah. you know, but in an anechoic chamber, there's, there's no boundary. And yeah. it's, you, you have that thing where if you turn away from someone, yeah. they can't hear you anymore. You have yeah. to look at each other to speak because you've got no yeah. reflected sound. It is, it is, Spooky. So I was the thing, the the story, the, the very old John Cage story that he he seems I think have told many 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 times, but where he goes to an chamber, and um, he comes out and says to the engineer, well, "It's not working properly. You know, <laughs> what's gone wrong?" And the engineer says, "Well, what you know, what what do you mean? What did you hear?" He says, well, "I heard two sounds. I heard this kind of low kind of rumbling sound." Mm-hmm. And I heard this very high-pitched sound. And the engineer tells him, the low rumbling sound is your blood moving around, <laughs> and the high-pitched sound is your nervous system. Now, this has actually been... Somebody's gone through this in some detail with with doctors, and they said this is simply not true. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you just can't hear a, you. You cannot hear your blood going around, and you cannot hear your nervous system. I didn't hear my blood. No. I, I, I sort of, I've heard that before and I was like, I didn't. Yeah, I don't think I hear my tinnitus, like, well, my sort of well, ear ringing ever so slightly. The thing I was really, I, I was actually before I was, so I had, I had, um, literally, for, I think it was Christmas last year, I said to my wife, what, what I would like for Christmas is to go to Anna Coke Chamber. Wow. And so she looked around and found there is one in London, which is at UCL's linguistics department. And it's a tiny, tiny one. It's really right. small. It's inside, probably smaller than the room we're in now. Once you've included, it's got these very DIY-looking, you like know, the, the, the sort of cone yeah. things. Yeah. When you see pictures of Anacote chambers, they're often incredibly slick and black and high tech. This literally looks like it was made by students, which I think it because possibly it probably was. was. And so you've got the baffles, and then you've got a metal grid over them so you can walk around yeah. so you don't bump into them. And, it, and did you walk one, on mesh on the floor yeah, as well? Mesh on on mesh. Floor. Yeah, yeah. And this just had then one comfortable chair. Oh wow. And but was a tiny room. So so we we turned up and had, had a nice chat to the tap and then we went in. I didn't completely notice that if you turn your head away you can't hear what they're saying. Yeah. But you noticed really that it was very, very directional. So like if you do that you can't hear your fingers moving and then you do that and suddenly it 
bit of pierce. Oh, wow. oh, you can't hear it in your front of your face. Yeah, I think it was like that. You wouldn't hear because your face of, like yeah, reflecting the sound sort of past your ears. Um, and then we then sat down. Everyone else left, and you turn the lights off. So you're just sat in there by Ooh. yourself for about for about 10, 10, 15 minutes. He left you in the dark. Yeah. In the so like a sensory deprivation. Type, yeah, absolutely. But. So you're completely dark. And in fact, I then realized my watch had little glowing things. I took my watch from my pocket because yeah, you yeah. could see that. Um, and you'd hear it ticking then, as well, yeah. probably. And, yeah. and the thing, I was really, <laughs> I was really pleased because my tinnitus wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it would okay, be. I, I was expecting to just hear this kind of roaring tinnitus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I found you could really hear the muscles and bones in your neck. When I turned my head left Ooh. and right, I could hear this kind of crunching, <laughs> grinding sort of noise. <laughs> um, I didn't get any of the sort of people have talked about it being kind of, you know, claustrophobic or mm. enclosed or people worrying. I, I was totally fine. You sat there for about 10, 10, 15 minutes and then he only kind of taps us, you know, we're coming in and close your eyes because we're going to turn the lights on. Wow. Um, but it was really interesting. Is The other thing I felt, I've been wearing nice ear-cancelling headphones for about a year or two. Mm. And I remember the first time I put those on, you have that really kind of weird experience. Where you almost feel like pressure on your ears or something. Yeah, yeah. You get this very kind of striking effect that now, more than more times, you don't really notice it as much. I do wonder if that, you know, wearing noise-cancelling earphones in a quiet room is actually as low a noise floor as you might get in an anechoic chamber. And actually, if the surprise and the real shock that someone like um, John Cage, where he was living in New York at the time, and he then goes out of sort of, you know, 1960s New York into the first place he's almost ever experienced silence in his life. Mm. I do wonder if the experience of, you know, that that artificial silence you get from noise-cancelling headphones has kind of made it less, seem less weird and less extreme to yeah. me than it was otherwise. Well, I think it's good that silence is something that you can achieve. Yeah. Like, that is actually in many ways a luxury, and especially in cities. Yeah. You know, and I've now left... You know, in the last few years, I left yeah. London. I now live in the country again. And, you know, there have been times where I've been for a walk and, you know, there's absolutely no wind and you just stop. And you're like, holy shit, it is quiet. Like, yeah. it, And, of course, there's other times where, you you know, you sit out in summer and it's like, yeah. <laughs> just like noise everywhere. It, but, but, but true silence, yeah. you can't. You know, you'd have well, to, we you'd have have to planes, manufacture it. We have the planes going overhead, yeah. so every every ninety seconds during the day. Although you know, after a time, and I, you know, my my auntie and uncle live in Chiswick, and they're they're over yeah. like the you know Heathrow fly zone, and, yeah. and we sit in the garden there. And the first one, you're like, God, that's loud. Yeah. But after ten minutes, yeah, I don't they they don't make a sound anymore. It's the same, you know, but they do. It's weird. You just, you become acclimatised to it. And when they had, when it was the Icelandic volcano. Yes. And all the planes stopped. The unpronounceable. That was very, very noticeable here. Yeah. Because suddenly there was just something missing. missing that wasn't, wasn't what you expected. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. Yeah, silence is, I don't know if it is as, I think I would have thought that an anechoic chamber is actually quieter than what can be done with. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, maybe somebody watching this, listening to this, will know and can did tell you, us. And did you feel sort of, you know, like... you like I have actually been to a sensory deprivation tank right, before okay. and done that. And it, I would, you know, I just would just buy... Well, bought a house 
and we, you know, we've got to do it up and stuff. And I did say to her, I was like, so the sensory deprivation test, yes. you know, where's that going to go in the house? She's like, you're not having one of those. Yeah. I'm like, well, actually, I genuinely believe that if you did have access to a sensory deprivation tank on a regular basis, yeah. but f- as a meditative um, facility, it's incredible. Like, I yeah. felt amazing after but is that one when you're lying in a bath or is yes it? okay that one. so you're well and the place that i went it was more like a little it's not like a creepy tank where you know yeah although you know the, the tanks do not have latches you can always open them yeah. and stuff but it was uh, more like a little mini bathroom and okay. then yeah there's a sort of there's about 12 inches of water yeah. and and it's full of epsom salts so, it's so full, you float really so you float like you're yeah. in the dead sea and yeah. so you get in this thing you, know, you get all your kit off you have special cotton in your ears because you don't get salt in your ears and stuff and so and you just lie in the thing and then kind of play a bit of music in you know with aquatic speakers just to sort of let you know and then the music fades out and you and if you sort of place yourself you just kind of sit and there's no part of you that's touching the walls there's no part of you not touching your bums not touching the the floor yeah and you just like that you're in silence because you're underwater as well, and you're just floating, and it, you know, if you can meditate, if and you, you loved have, it, yeah, yeah. I thought it was. I can't. I was in there. I don't know how long. Forty minutes or so. Yeah. Um. Come out. You have a shower, and obviously meditation itself will give you that kind of mental, you know, sense of airiness. It, it, yeah. You know, I think meditation, regular meditation, has the ability of just raising your base level of happiness. Is sort of the yeah. way I've thought about it in the past. And I even just forty minutes in that little yeah. room, I came out like floating. Wow! And it's but it's not something that I think a lot of people think it's sort of a bit like wacky and new age and a bit sort yeah. of like not you know it's like well that's ridiculous. So you think you need one on every corner like like tanning shops? Yeah, exactly. I definitely think that they are a better force for good than. I tanning think there shops. is one opposite my office actually, so maybe I should go and. Hundred percent. Like that out. should be your Christmas yeah. present this year. Is is going literally going forty minutes in one of those, and um, yeah, I, I thought it was great. But it's just not something. It's an expensive thing. It's something yeah. like sixty quid or yeah. fifty quid for a session because it's low volume. You know, we need a Behringer sort of of to democratise the a big bucket that you got to sit <laughs> easy easy head. float. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that and that reminds me of the, the we had CV freaks. So I did talks again. So the last big was Marta Saloni. I don't know if you know her. So I've heard of Marta, but yeah. and it was really I didn't realise that she was involved in sort of like the mad sound design, like yeah. all that stuff that she was. I had no idea that that's so what her sort of discipline. She was fascinating. So she is a rising star of music production engineering. She's kind of engineered and mixed people like Bjork and Frank Ocean yeah. and loads of these big records, and has also done lots of interesting smaller records that you just I sort of. I'd been following her on Twitter or Instagram or something, and you just discovered these quite interesting, unusual records that you wouldn't necessarily heard about. Mm. And then sort of triangulated and realised that that's how you'd heard about them because they'd come through her. But she, So she did this talk where she's obviously very busy and I was trying to work out what to get her to, to do because she, you know, wasn't... I don't think was going to want to prepare a sort of 25-minute, half-an-hour talk mm. like some people do. So I said to her, just take pictures of your your studio space where you work and then we'll put them up on the screen and you can talk through them. And she did this, it worked really well, and it was it was all about this space she works in, um, where she has her big, you know, console and there's a whole story of how she found this 
this Tascam console from not Tascam, uh, Revox, I think. Anyway, can't remember a big right. console. Um, and but it was also things like she will have the books because she's like, you've got to rest your eyes from if you're looking at a screen the whole time hmm. and you're mixing, you rather than then stopping and then looking at your phone for a bit, you should stop and then look at a piece a of book. paper and just you know rest your eyes properly and separate it. A lot about the plants that were there in the the space. She's got lots of plants in there. Um, and it was just about setting up a space in which she could work and a space that she could kind of, you know, the way you optimise that space. Mm. But also she's she basically collects old reel-to-reels as well. Mm, nice. So there's one where she was telling the story of buying this particular, this crazy-looking kind of almost sort of deco-looking reel-to-reel that she bought and it arrived with a piece of tape on it and she listened to it and I think she said it was kind of spoken word or it was somebody reading poetry or something she's just left that tape on it the entire time Absolutely. and she will perform with that piece of tape then reading something over the top of it and treating that so it was that amazing these kind of nuggets that you find a bit like when it was super booth two or three super booths ago where Chris Randall, who does um, audio damage, was wandering around the old buildings. This was when it was at Funk House. The first, very one. first, yeah, yeah. And he found this um, reel of tape left in one of the buildings uh, and came and gave it to me because I had a tape. Well, I had that tape head module. Oh, you did, <laughs> yes, yeah. And so and we played it back on the, you know, and it was this tiny snippet of what would have been an Eastern European radio program you know entirely mm. un- mundane the little snippet of it but it was an amazing little artifact, Art- that artifact. Found, yeah. yeah yeah but i um because of heinbach um i was sort of you know you watch his videos and you just instantly go you know new tab ebay yeah and then <laughs> Marantz cp yeah. whatever and so i sort of was looking into cassette oh, cassette yes. decks and i was like I have, you know, there's such a kind of romanticism about the idea of having one of those nice, like, um, 80s, yeah. you know, premium 80s radio production broadcast cassette decks. Oh, yes. Phantom yeah. Power. Like the Euros or the Marantz. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd love to have one of those. Like, and the Sony, the, like, little Sony WD6 or whatever, it's like the tiny little thing. Yeah. But that kind of has an equivalent audio quality as a big, you yeah. know, like a big deck. Um, and so I was sort of looking into these things and I didn't end up buying a cassette deck. So like 120 quid, I'm just like, does my fetishism stretch to 100? But what I did buy was a, a little dictaphone. Oh, yes. Because it uses yeah. it with the tiny little cassettes, yeah, yeah. you know. And, and you know, under Heinbach's advice, so he was like, you know, it's, it's good because you've, you know, it's so crappy. You just get all of, yeah. you know, you cannot divorce the tapiness. It's just wall-to-wall warpiness. Yeah. And, of course, it doesn't record at the correct speed. It doesn't play back at consistent speeds. It needs servicing. And so I just recorded a whole series of, like, you know, my niece talking and stuff in the street and conversations. Um, And I've been been acquiring samplers and will transfer and do something, you know, with my posh Circlon sequencer and a sampler in this material. Um, But the reason I bring this up is that I... I was also buying old cassettes. Oh, yes. Old little cassettes. Now, I was, I'm, yeah. I was looking for new ones. You know, yeah. I was happy to buy. And people, you know, just like with cassettes, people have got five people packs them, yeah. and yeah. they just chuck them on eBay. Yeah. But I got one that was in a pack and it was yeah. sealed in a package. Yeah. But it was not blank. 
it had been used for an answering machine. Oh, and so, wow. So it has messages on it yeah. from someone in the UK. And it's like, you know, like, hello, Sandy, you know, da 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 and I'm got. I'm going to have. I haven't done it yet, but I will transfer that off, and that's going straight into my radio music. So there's an amazing site that is somebody who just does exactly that. Yeah, he collects those tapes, yes. and he's also made a radio music library. Has he? There's a, there's a yes, I've got some of those. I've got some of them. Yeah, it was in your set, those, wasn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so I think that's a wonderful project yeah. as a concept. It's like these kind of. These conversations, well, it goes back to what Robin used to do, a scanner, when yes. back back when you could actually just record phone conversations over the air. Yeah. Because it was all analogue and unencrypted. I did ask him about it. I was like, is that really true? He's like, yes, it was. Yeah, absolutely. You could do it. Like... You could literally just tune into... And people tuned into the royal family. I mean, that's where some of that stuff came from. Really? Yeah. The, one of the great scandals was... Was it Prince Charles talking to Camilla? There's tape, there was, oh, the, the there was air... recordings, which I think was recorded like that. I don't see how else it would have been recorded unless it was kind of leaked by yeah. MI5. But it was, yeah, it used to just be that you could you could do that. Absolutely crackers. And you didn't, you haven't in this year bought the little mini Nagra for the for you know the sort no. of you're using the wire you know no, for, for, for clandestine recording. No, That's why those, it's so small. Those would be an amazing thing. But no. I mean, it is like a Swiss. It's that yeah. sort of. It's like the Sony. I mean, the, the the big ones are like a Swiss watch inside. They're incredible, but they're mm. not quite as small. But yeah. you've become a great watch fetishist. I've noticed. I'm I'm, st- I'm always a watch fetishist. Yeah. I have been for many years. Yeah. I mean, anyone who's watched my videos has noticed the fact that I've yes. always got like different watches. Yeah. I had a sort of, you know, I'm a kind of. You know, I'm an idiot in many ways and struggled to, like, read analogue watches and sort of just bought digital watches for years. Yeah. And did, you know, I like digital watches. But, yeah, this this has been my latest obsession, which yeah. is... This is the Seiko Giugiaro Seiko, which is designed by Giorgio... Is it Giorgio Giugiaro? But the guy, he designed the DeLorean. Okay. And so it looks DeLorean-y. Yeah. But it's, it's famous because it was the watch that... James Cameron chose for Sigourney Weaver to wear in Aliens. I see. So she's, if you look carefully, she's wearing... This. Is that the one where you bought two of them? Yes, because... So you could I, hack them together. Yeah, basically, because... I mean, and I respect this, and it's cool that, like, Seiko... When they reissued this watch, which was originally made in the early 80s, they, they, did a sort, they didn't quite design the future. They did it a little bit differently. It wasn't exactly the same as the old watch. Yeah. And then they did variants that I don't know. I think back in the originals, there was a silver and there was a black one. But, yeah, they made a silver one, but they put the black chronograph on the side. Right. And then they did a black one, and they put a silver chronograph on the side, <laughs> just to be like... And then the faces yeah. were inversions of each other yeah. as well. So you had this kind of... These two models that are like they're perfect opposites of yeah. one another. And so I bought both. <laughs> so what you're saying is they created a recreation of an older product, but rather than creating a proper recreation, they, they decided did. to add clever things yes, to it. Yes, exactly and right. And you didn't want that. <laughs> no, I didn't want okay. that. I just wanted the whole thing as it was. <laughs> and I can't have it because, unfortunately, the prices, the second-hand prices for the, you know, for it are just higher. skyrocketing yeah. because of the rarity and there's only 3,000. Yeah. So, yeah I, yeah, I do accept that. So, I mean, <laughs> Yuli, if you're listening, like... Uli watches. Uli watches. Yeah. I just don't think we should give him any more ideas. I think no. he's got plenty of ideas of his own. The, the analogy is in comedy. It's like, it's not funny to punch down, yeah. you know, but punching up is, is funny. Yeah. Someone else was like, oh, you know, you're a massive fucker because, um, because tip top, you know, someone modular addict oh, yeah, they did their own, yeah. Yeah. you know, and I'm like, well, that's punching sideways. Yes. You know, that's, you're both small companies. Maybe we should just have less punching. Yeah, well, that would be ideal. <laughs> Do your own thing. I mean, like, to their credit, like, Hoser, you know, they 
Have you seen the hoods of hopscotch? It's the same idea, but it's implemented differently. It has its own benefits as well with the hopscotch. The hose of hopscotch, because the little, the sort of socket is not connected to the thing, you can do this, this is really nerdy, but you can do this thing of like laying it down and then create like five stacks off of it. Okay, yeah. You would never have a stack cable that high, but you can have a hopscotch that that is that high and you can lay it sideways so it's, it's, it's not, you can actually use it. Do you know what yeah, I mean? So. Yeah. yeah, so what I was saying, at the beginning of about a year ago, last year I felt like I had just not actually finished anything. <laughs> I think that's what we're talking about. You just so I was, I sort of like berated year, you to so, say, just so do this it. Year, this year I finally put out the startup, which is the little headphone amp. With I a, think that's great as well. Um, and that had been, I showed that at Superboost like three four years ago yeah, yeah, yeah. Really kept making cool. these annoying little changes to it so this year i actually had a new kind of daily routine my daughter gets up really early to go to school so i was like i'll get up at six o'clock in the morning and then i'll do an hour of music thing mm-hmm. probably between seven and eight and then i'll go off to work and that's been brilliant and i've been able to do that have you done that pretty consistently much, pretty consistently all year and it was really good because it meant i i was never sat in the evening thinking, oh, I should do some things I want to do, but I'm sort of tired, I don't really want to do that. So yeah. I got my evenings back. Yeah, and it meant that I was able to say, I'm going to do this much time, but to whatever. you know. So I didn't also need to be thinking as much about kind of prioritisation because I knew I had quite a lot of you know, time. This, this chunk of time to do. Yeah. So I spent sort of most of January, February, March doing a kind of sequencer project that I would have mm. probably you did uh, show mentioned last, showed last year. Well, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it it essentially has got away with me. I haven't got away from me. I haven't, I spent, I spent literally about six weeks trying to work out ways of generating interesting rhythmic patterns using very, very small amounts of memory, <laughs> you know, kind of binary, and buying books like, the geometry of musical rhythm. Yeah, that, books like that sounds like Euclidean. Yeah, well, it's well, got three two songs. That is, so, yeah. by, the, okay, that is yeah. by the Euclidean guy, but then you've got creating rhythms by Holos and Holos, and you've got some. And you'll notice how they're not that heavily used. These books, because some of them are very, very intense. So, Rhythm and Transforms by uh, Sethares is um, apparently the the one to go for. But I spent so I literally spent about three months looking at you know diagrams like this where you just have hundreds of little spots and dots and bits of binary. And then I sort of, you know, lost interest a bit. And gave it to <laughs> just like, probably so, after I just kind of, this, this, this is, this this is, is not something I'm, I'm enjoying anymore on this one. But so I you... sort of moved away from that. So I will no doubt come back. And also you, le- you learn a lot along the way. Yeah. And so, but you just, I ended up sort of looking at it and thinking this is too... Too complicated. It was also partly I was simultaneously trying to design a thing that was useful, but also imagine ways that people would be able to expand from it and use it to do other things. Mm. It became too too laborious. Where I found things are interesting in the past is where you do something quite quickly and you put it out, and then people do interesting things with it. Mm. So, microphoning was a classic example of that, where it was basically a joke wouldn't be funny if you could hear the switches and the knobs in your modular Mm. um and that became something much more interesting and emily took that on something even more Mm. interesting you know the turing machine when i first designed that had no real idea of the expanders 
so it wasn't really built with those ideas in in the future. Yeah, I just thought you might as well surface these. So if I can think of something else, I can do it with that. Um, so I sort of eventually, you know, put that modular to one so that that sequencer to one side, um, and then spent a lot of time looking at this sort of tiny um, MIDI thing with a screen and a um, accelerometer in it but it's definitely not quite finished so it doesn't quite work and we've gone back to but it's quite it was the idea of something that was a that would put out midi or put out you know you connected by usb so it can put out midi i'm sure you could program it to put out osc or whatever else you want to want to have coming out of it oh it's got a down and so it's got a single pot it's got a few buttons and it's got an accelerometer and it's got a screen so it's really interesting for like um that really is a music thing yeah you kind of there's a bunch of interesting things you could do with it where you have things like particles moving around the screen and as you move them around Ah, i saw trigger off notes yeah that's some of the prototypes you had some little clips that sounded amazing and it, it is really interesting and again it's another thing that i will will return to um but Really interesting as well for just doing really, really teeny, teeny. teeny. Oh, it's <laughs> you just like, if you look at the, I'm looking at it, it has thinking, a sort of back panel, but this needs a strap. And yeah, it could go. I could wear it. It's almost like that, and it so it then sort of did. You know, I learned a lot again about using microcontrollers in different ways and making things that were very small. So, um, what's the and why does it need to be small? Because it's like a USB stick. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's like it's 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 nature. Could it actually be a USB stick so you could plug it into a computer? Or is the I did. I did look at like it. You could. You could. Bit. You could absolutely have USB coming out of it. I just thought if you then have that and an accelerometer in it, it's a bit like you can move mm. your entire laptop around. <laughs> the earliest designs of it was it would be a USB stick, but then you just you realize you just have an extension cable to actually do anything with it. Yeah. You might as well just have a. Well, it's like that dude who put a. DX7 or whatever into a USB stick. Yeah. And the, the, then there is that little analog synth that's a USB yeah. stick as well. Yeah. And you get ones in the MIDI sockets as well. So it was kind of thinking about that, but it didn't quite get to, to the answer. Interesting. Then going from that, so thinking about MIDI and thinking about microcontrollers a lot. Knobs. Mark um, Wiedenbaum, who's a who's the journalist. Disquiet. Yeah. Man. Disquiet guy. Yes. He was on Facebook saying, who will make, you know, why isn't there a small MIDI controller that's got a couple of knobs and fits in your fits in your bag so that when you're at the library, you can just have a quick fiddle with something, you know, play, play music for a few minutes while you're researching. So this is what I designed for him. Okay. Uh, which was literally, what, you, what is it that you want? So and this he said, so that's five sliders. So it's like a little mini... You know, music easel sequencer there. Yeah. Um, two pots and two endless encoders. Oh, these are endless. Yeah, yeah. Um, so design that for him, and then it's got it's got one USB C and one USB Mini. They're just connected together. So essentially, yeah. if one falls off, you can use the, cool. the other one. Quality. Um, or depending on what you've got. So it did that, and that was quite interesting as a little little. Project, you know, it was quite because MIDI is so simple and because the the code kind of all all exists. So I then made these ones. Yeah, this is and so this is just like eight sliders. So this and is just, literally just eight sliders, very similar to Tom's sixteen N, which six, is the, yes, yes. that thing. It's the yeah. same sort of thing. It's just got USB C. It's got um, hardware MIDI out there, mm. um, and then it's got these kind of 
screen on the back. So these, this has got LEDs that shine through, so you can you can choose, and then scribble strips on the back, so you can write, you know, DX7, num, you know, CC32 to 39 on the back, whatever. Uh, and that does work very nicely. So I think we might. So this is sort of the MIDI equivalent of this. Exactly. Of the, the, the four knobs. So I realise my whole thing has been scale this week, yeah. this year. So it's been really, really small things, really big things. Um, this is, you know, slightly smaller than a credit card. But it is really nice just having it plugged into your, you know, I mean, obviously I'm just describing a MIDI controller. Indeed. It's a very, very, it's slightly smaller than a credit card. And it's kind of just, Quite a nice, and they've loads of different. I mean, what's the, I suppose I'm kind of thinking. Well, what does this offer that no other controller does? And I suppose it's just the utter raw simplicity it's just, it's of it. Really simple and really it, small. It, it yeah. literally is just eight little faders, yeah. but you could do any number. And it does it say so six X flatter one? It can do. Yeah, it can do six X. It can do. I mean, I'm sure it also actually runs um, Python. So you actually, when you plug it into your laptop, a little folder appears on your desktop. And it's got a bunch of text files in it, and that's the entire code. Oh, wow. So it's even simpler than a kind of Arduino type thing. So it's quite... Wouldn't, uh, we talked about this. Do you show me this? Oh, no, yeah. you, you, you sent me an email about yeah. it. I was like, it'll Too slide simple. around. And so you then bought... Then you need... <laughs> then you went and bought... You need a gel, gel squidgy mats. Gel so squidgy squares. gel mats. And you, you so like, seem to have come to love these, these things. These are great. You, you, know, you, can, you just literally stick them down, and then nothing slides about. They're perfect. You actually had one stuck to your monitor as well. Yeah, you look, you can do this. Then I was starting to go, all right, okay, I can see, you see the... Make it on there. For our then... audio listeners, Tom has just squidged one onto his iMac and then squidged oh, perfect, perfect physical controls just where perfect. I need them. Just exactly right in the middle of the screen. I mean, it's just perfect. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, yeah, it's sort of weird. It, it kind of is like... So, sorry, did it send SysX, and has it got a DX7, you know? Yes. Can you program yes, you the DX7 can, with you it? You can program the DX7 with it, and... When are you doing the, the one with, you know, the gelling house version that's got 160? Well, I mean, the point is, you you could do it. It's just, you know, it's quite... How much do these little sliders cost? The sliders are quite expensive. Yeah. So the sliders are, like, at least a pound, pound 50. Okay. So it's not ultra, ultra cheap. Obviously... I'd imagine Uli gets them a bit cheaper. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he does. She bought 10 million of them. Yeah, exactly. They're quite interesting, the different sizes as well. Like this one's got the little kind Is of... That a... Oh, they're slightly longer throw, aren't they? No, well, they're... What yeah, do you mean the fizz? No, the, the, fizz, the, the ends. The, the actual ends. slides. And I like the these, tips. they remind me of the Odyssey. Yeah, because they're quite nice for hacking as well. Yeah. So you can easily turn it into something like... It can be a sequencer, and each of these can change a numerical... Something that causes the way it generates notes, mm. that sort of thing. Um, because it is very easy to program to make it do interesting things. How much would they cost? How much would this could this retail for? I haven't I haven't worked that out at all. So I you know, there will definitely be other MIDI controllers will be available that are cheaper. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure you'll be able to get those kind of Korg ones. Yeah. Um, well yeah, I mean those are crazy cheap. Next to nothing. So but also they're not hackable or no, flexed, I mean, you know, in that way. Yeah, and I don't know whether I never know whether people are gonna want something. Your kerning is not tight enough on there. Yeah. I, I actually made a video recently Back here. and I was um I was I was like choosing I haven't got a font for my video. I need to like have my own font, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, my aesthetic is sort yeah. of not I don't really have a font, but there are fonts I sort of enjoy and kind of return to. Yeah. And there was one I was like, oh, that's nice. 
And then I was like, I was like, I'll close Kernet. I was like, oh, that looks lovely, really classy. And then I realised it's your font, and it's because, <laughs> and it's in the Mimia phone video. If you watch yeah. it, I was really like, oh wow, I've just actually redesigned the music thing. Like, I go, sorry, Tom, I probably need to pay you a few quid for that. So, apologies, I ripped you off. Well, that came onto the book. So then, the other thing I did in my early mornings made a book. Was made a book. Um, I mean. Um, this is the thing. Obviously, you are a journalist. Well, yes. I have been a journalist, so yeah. it kind of a book is almost the most yeah. normal thing I can think that you would uh, make. But, but in fact, the idea for this came well partly from so these. This is, this is, by the way, it's called the Music Thing Modular Workshop Notebook. Can you? What is the sort of elevator pitch for this? So book? the idea is, it's a notebook for designing electronics modules and modules specifically. So. This thing here is what it was originally based on, which is the Make magazine did a maker's notebook, which has, this is one of mine, um, and literally it's... You've got sort of designs for the Turing yeah, machine. The, this will have Turing machine oh, designs wow. in it It's somewhere. a historical document. So this has got... This will be... FM radio module. This will be in a museum one day. So, so I, you know, use these... Yeah, there we go. It's a mini clear at this stage. So, yeah. It's got the little, like, shift register thing. This, I think, was before I worked out the actual main sort of knob that changes the that locks on. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. But this you is know, just, like, nice. graph paper. This is just graph paper. Basically. And so that's... There you go. That's the first... Oh, shit. That's oh. the first sketch. I was like, oh, hang on, that's what it'll do. So there's, like, a, yeah, it's literally a picture of chaos knob loop double loop. Yeah. Which you didn't put on the actual thing, so it's no. never clear what no. the, the turning the knob actually <laughs> does. I even now don't remember which side is double and which is... Oh, uh, OK. Yeah. I just have to, like, do it. And yeah. Be, like, oh, yeah, 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 it starts like <laughs> It could definitely... I mean, I have, like, I've got... Um, I saw your upside down one. Yeah, I put one, yeah. Uh, put one in my case. So I, use it, I use it to control the... Amount of steps of a Euclidean module. Okay, yeah. So it, which is a nice because then it makes yeah, yeah. a loopable, yeah, yeah. you know, and effectively controls the amount of steps yes, in a really pleasing yeah. way. Yeah. Um, and then I've turned it upside down just so that the you know the sockets aren't in the way. So um, so the book was yeah was was I just the, the actually the idea came from my son who is a he his kind of hobby thing he's done has been he's into playing cards nice. and like. There's this whole thing of cardistry that sort of teenage boys do. Cardistry. Cardistry, which is collecting and doing kind of tricks and stuff. Oh, like... But not, not, yeah, more not manipulating the tricks. cards rather like, than magic tricks. You know, tricks, when you do yeah. the sort of, like, fanning them and... Yeah, it's yeah. that sort of thing. So he does... Him and his mates do kind of events in London and Dynamo turns up and, you know, really? there's quite a sort of little scene around that. But he, he... There are scenes. Yeah, there are endless scenes. Things. So he completely off his own... You know, he he came with the idea of making a a notebook so people can sketch playing card backs and playing cards. They can design them. So he literally just did this. Wow. Went to he prints like a fanzine sort of thing. So he went to his printer and said, "Can How you, old is can you do a book?" He's sixteen. <laughs> um, so what was I doing when I was sixteen? He was making like a profitable fanzine when he was fourteen. It was just incredible. I've never produced a profitable magazine. <laughs> 20 years of trying. Um, so he did this note, and I was like, hang on, somebody might want that for for modules. So you've got... Okay. You've got basically graph paper for drawing your circuits. Yeah. Um, 
with these kind of spots that match up to components. So they are... So they're actually the spots are... You could yeah. lay the components on the paper and they're the yeah, correct distances. so it's like distances. that. It's like, here is a... So you've got a little... Op amp. And we know about those. As we were talking about earlier. Yeah. You put it on and the legs match up with the spots. So That's it's amazing. kind of you're sketching in the right kind of layout. In the correct it. dims, yeah. and indeed they do. Um, yeah, so it was... So that's sort of like PCB layout is what you sort would Sort of, yeah. I mean, you would do PCB, but, but it's more just... It might be if you're planning something to put on a breadboard or you're just building something on perf board, which is another of the kind of prototyping yeah. things you can do. That can help you just think... You know, and also one of the processes earlier on is just working out can you fit the components you're thinking about in roughly the right sort of space so mm. you might sketch it out. Yeah. You know, potentially in there. But also you need a graph of some kind. Yeah. <laughs> you need graph paper. You need lines. So you've got that, then you've got a whole mass Love these. Of the, these are like the blank they're just like blanks yeah, on paper. Just blank panels. So you can then sketch them and you can look. Yeah, there's one of those little tiny screens. Oh, you I put see. the components on and draw around them and you can just get, you know, what would it be like if you had a little vertical OLED screen in the middle of the page? Oh, that's vertical, was... just to save HP. And, you know, chuck a few controls on that. What if you had, like, a mad, enormous knob on there? That makes... And, uh, yeah, and you've got different sizes, so you can basically... Yeah. And I think, you know, this is... If it was me, I, that's... You know, you sent me one of these books very kindly. Yeah. And, I mean, I have ideas for modules, you know, yeah. quite often where I'm like, there's something I want to do. Well, just draw them and then send, and them, would... send them to me and then I'll make them. <laughs> 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 then we'll send it to Uli and then he'll do the yeah, exactly. yeah, He'll cool. do the work. Yeah, cool. So it was nice, really. And this was just like a nice, simple... I had to buy this book in order to design it, which I remember... You mean you justified the purchase? I remember when I was working in magazines, all the designers had this book... Oof, that is a look Which at that. Is, This is Grid Systems in Graphic Design. Uh, a visual Joseph Muller Brockman. Oh. <laughs> and literally so it is, everything's it is, in a Helvetica. It is pure maths, this book. It's hilarious. It's what? how you how you and I remember that seeing them, I was like, why do designers make such a fuss about grids the whole time? What are they up to? Yeah. And when I actually tried to design this, something that looked remotely sort of sensible and professional, you realise it's like when you get through it, it's Literally pages and pages of this is how you do the maths to so is this to arrange columns. Magazine so layout. This is magazine layout. That's so what it's it to do with the heights of the text. The whole thing. Like line width with, is something yeah. I'm a big like. Eighty characters, I yeah. think, is that is correct line width. There are a few websites that um, I'd like, you know, where they they just don't think about that at all. Yeah. And it's like, we've all got big monitors and the pages stretch out yeah. wide. You can't read text of it. Right. You don't want to anyway. But essentially I read that and you then did create this, a grid. Did this help? It did help. It did mean this This. This is designed in a rational manner. <laughs> yeah. I'm very pleased to hear that. Absolutely. Do you mean it's like, uh, not like the, um, you know, what is the golden ratio or whatever? It's, it's that sort of thing. That one isn't the golden ratio, but it's, you know, proper, you know, you lay it out and it all kind of works. Just about. <laughs> I mean, surely these are things that you would have approached intuitively. Like, you've got a sense of... What, no, I how, definitely didn't approach you not? No, okay. if you approach intuitively, it looks like you've designed it intuitively. <laughs> okay, cool. That book is amazing because it is literally... This This explains how the whole thing works. And you sit there with a calculator and you work it all out in, in design. And then you're like, OK, now I've got columns that do this and columns that do that and up and down. It all makes it work. Right. It's very Swiss. And, and, like, on these pages as well, you've used your, like, random module yeah. generator to create ideas in case yeah. you're stuck. 
The Cumbia Mix is a massive pitch shifter module that is handmade in the Cotswolds. Russell Haswell connected his to Glasswell Laser. <laughs> I'm sure he did. <laughs> and the results were challenging. As ever. Yes. Well, why not? And there's a nice ad at the back for Funk. Yes, and then there's a sort of 80 synth ad. So that's literally a um, Oberheim ad. There yeah. is an Oberheim ad. Yeah, yeah, that is exactly just that same. exact layout. And we just copied it. Yeah, I um, I designed an ad recently, and I just, uh, if you buy Sound on Sound, and there is an ad for this um, brand called Loki. Right. Uh, which Loki is, uh, they're like these little, like, laser-cut sort of wood veneer oh, stamps. Yes, and they're yeah. sort of like they have their own little grid system. Yeah. They're kind of, well, grid system. Yeah. But, you know, they interlock and you can expand them. Yeah. I, I think they're really good. Um, but I designed an ad to put in Sound on Sound, which I did all the writing for as well. Yeah. And um, it's just the Ogilvy ad. Yeah. You know, the Ogilvy format. So it's I, a long copy. It has, it's long form copy. Brilliant. It's a big appealing picture. It's a real picture. It's not a drawing or a render. You know? yeah. It's so funny how when you read that, there is the, basically there is this piece of A4 paper that is, you know, this is everything that we've learned about ad design yeah. from Ogilvy. Here you go, it's on a plate. Yeah. And it talks about, you know, long form copy and there is a whole sort of, um, you know, everyone thinks, uh, the best example of this, which is, again, it was Ogilvy's comment where they say, you know, people want a punchy headline, they don't want to, you know, they do want a punchy headline, yeah. you have to have a headline that, that draws you in. But it's this idea that people don't read long copy. Yeah. You know, and it's like, and the argument is that if you're trying to sell someone on something, if you're a yeah. salesperson, you know, do you just go, will you, when you stand at, you know, Synthfest, will you go... Big knobs. Big knobs now. Yes, I will. <laughs> will you just say those words <laughs> and then just approach. freeze and the person will just throw money at yeah, you? Yeah, that's how it works. Or will you, that's <laughs> that's that, definitely what I'm planning. Okay, cool. <laughs> that, that will certainly do yeah. something. Expensive uh, knobs, slightly less expensive knobs. Yeah. yeah. And just say that, and that's all you yeah. say. I think, yeah, great. About long comment, there's an amazing article about designing, um, about how you sell things on websites. And it, it talks about, their example is the Kindle page on Amazon. Yeah. So obviously Kindle is an enormously important product for Amazon. The Kindle page has got something like 4,000 words of copy on it because they will obviously optimise it endlessly and endlessly and endlessly. And they've discovered that if it's, constructed clearly so you can navigate through and you can say okay what's my question what's my answer how does it work that is the correct amount of copy four thousand it's something like it's two thousand or four thousand that it's is that really was the big. amount that convinced you people uh, and it's like, a really wow, really wow. really long page even without the with the comments at the bottom it's a really long scroll down i mean imagine that imagine that as someone shopping for a book book reader would be interested in reading copies you can <laughs> I mean, imagine i mean yeah. there is some i can see the logic <laughs> that they went with there but it's interesting it's that much and it's my yeah. this is the point i mean if you really if you're trying to sell p people on the big knob machine you spend yeah. 10 minutes exactly. listening to them explain you know what are your problems what, what are, are you your, what are trying to what do are your, what are the problems that we solve by a large knob absolutely right and in your daily work you were talking about your job you know yeah. you are, your job is to go in and listen at yeah. length it's listening to customers and understanding what is their what are their actual needs yeah which again takes us back to uli yeah Uli says, what is it that you want? I'd like an 808. And then Roland's going, ah, maybe you'd like a small digital 808 with green fluorescent knobs. 
or something. I mean, I don't know. Here, here is an eight I wonder if they do do market research, you know. Who? I know uh, Roland, Roland and Behringer as well. Yeah. I know Behringer's market research is early post on gear sluts and says, whatever you want, we'll make it. Yeah. Um, which is cool, but it is that idea of, you know, as I said, the quote earlier is, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said, a faster horse. Exactly, a cheaper 808. Yeah. And obviously it's not going to make any progress in the world. But no, if you're it doesn't move flog, music technology. If you're trying to flog drum machines, it might be a better approach than, than trying to imagine what they, what they want. But it's then you've got Electron, who designed the analog written, yeah. and it's, you have something that is genuinely new, yeah. but has the... It makes me sad. So Aspects when, of it when you're sad. designing modules at home, yes. what is it that you're designing? Um, I have needs. Yeah. I've got needs. I have needs. And I'll be like, you know, one of them that I've, I've mentioned before, and which is wonderful because if I mention these things, people email me them and I, I'm creating that thing yeah. or it's, it's something that I was interested in making yeah. as well and I happen to have designed it. Yeah. Um, you know, and some people very kindly have sent me their things. But, like, for example, I wanted a you know, a way of having two sequences yeah. and then just going from two to one. Right. Not one to two, but so I want the inputs of two sequences yeah. and I want to be able to choose which one I'm listening to at that point, at right. that point or which I'm sending into a voice. And, so, right. and that's something that hasn't quite existed. Um, yeah. The other one, what was the other... Uh, I can't remember. It'll come to me. Because you, so, you don't want Uli to copy it. I don't want Uli to copy it or music thing to come out with yeah. every version of it before I can. <laughs> exactly. Um, is it the bigger knob? It is. It's, it's like the even bigger knob. Just with one. It's like a wheel. <laughs> it's like a big steering wheel. Oh, actually, speaking of wheels. Oh, my God. I've got to make something of this. This I bought off. off is that a vernier dial? Yeah. Well, no, it's not. It's, a, it's actually an encoder and it's for um, milling machines. Like, um, I guess there's kind of, yeah, milling machines. But um, have a go on that. Oh, that's nice. Very pleasing, isn't it? So is that, that and that's just... So it's well, it's, it reminds me a bit of that... Um, this is something that uh, Jason at Signal Sounds was talking about. It's the... There's a cassette transport module. Oh, uh, yes, yeah. Which the, uses a similar dial, yeah. but it will obviously be a smooth... Yeah, that's smooth. Cause I was going to say, yeah... All right, this will probably now be mono. But You're going to do? Are you doing a quad? quad this is going to be quadraphonic. Not five point one. No, I'm, no, no I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it like I'm, I'm going to do it like Dolby Atmos. This just podcast <laughs> since I've recorded it in in a tetrahedral array. So you're going to hire the um, some enormous cinema to play it. Absolutely in. Yeah. right. Yeah. That is the, the way that this podcast was meant to be enjoyed. <laughs> if you're watching on your phone, it's a, you're fucking cheating yourself. Like it's a joke. Uh, <laughs> But literally, that is the design, the module design process. You see something it's like that. That's fine. wonderful. And I'm like, what I can just, I attach to it? <laughs> well, I think you need the, the quicker that you invent a DX7 controller that is just done. Well, with maybe that. if Let's... you did that, but with 180 of these, it was great. Oh my God. You just go. Like the size of a wall. Yeah. Millions of pounds to They're that. They're really heavy as well. So uh, somebody shared a bunch of videos of some Dutch TV show where they went to. Uh, Square Pusher's house, Votex house. Yes, I love that. And who's the other one? Oh, there's three people. It's like the old drum, like the drum and bass. The drum and bass. And, yeah. Uh, but I always remember hearing those drum and bass records that had so much just stuff going on in them. You just thought, is somebody actually sat here and put all this stuff in place? You know, mm. moved all these tiny little bits together to make this incredibly precise Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. And it was like a watch or something. It was this incredibly yeah. precise thing that they were doing. And in that video, you see them being slightly more relaxed about it 
it's like chuck some notes in here yeah, and put it out and it's like oh you've made a photo record that's yeah. amazing I mean but then if you see what Square Pusher is using to make yeah, that yeah. music yeah. I'm like where's the sequencer and, and yeah. I believe this is true the sequencer is a boss drum machine right yeah and yeah. he's just got a 950, uh, an eight-track reel-to-reel, yeah. and a Mackie desk, and his yeah. bass guitar and some records that he yeah. sampled. I'm like, you and that's are. the wonderful one when he then goes to some rave. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and he plays kind of a soundtrack. He just, yeah, <laughs> and he's I, like, it's a bit smaller than I was expecting. Yeah, it's my first. <laughs> I've never played a festival before. It's just <laughs> <laughs> he's just yeah, he, and he. I think he still kind of makes music in that way. I think he. Yeah. Well, I read an interview with him. Where he fundamentally says that he hasn't changed how he makes music from yeah. that day. From from what he, the way that he worked, that he just uses a computer as a sort of big tape machine. Yeah, um, and he yeah he is another one that can keep the the bigger picture in his mind. Yeah, I don't the, um, the after watching that, I was then I wonder what Fotek's up to now. Yeah, very big Hollywood yeah. LA type producer. Yeah, yeah, and it was extraordinary to shift from him because in the film he also has a Ferrari at that stage. <laughs> so he drives at the beginning of the film he drives his Ferrari into this. Tiny sort of into a house somewhere in like chicken. <laughs> and goes into his kind of shed and makes, yeah, this, cool. makes this thing. But then you you Google him again and he's now in in LA and this enormous switch and he looks yeah, yeah. almost unrecognizable. Yeah, yeah, that's quite weird. Yeah, and that's the sort of whereas I think Square Pusher has a nicer house but fundamentally still lives in East. You know, yeah. lives in Essex and does the same thing. So the Hollywood thing, right? Another thing I did this year. I have a friend who is a uh, soundtrack composer, so Daniel Pemberton. Yeah, yes. And I went. I mentioned before when you go and see him recording. No, I don't know if I mentioned the previous one. So this year, he was doing the. He's just done the Motherless Brooklyn soundtrack, right. which is really nice and it's kind of jazzy, really interesting. Um, but he also did that funny. He did the Danny Boyle Beatles film this year. Right. Yes. Yes. And so he was recording this at uh, Abbey Road, as you would. So I went round, went round to see him while he was doing this, and it's amazing. To at go Abbey Road, at yeah. Abbey Road. Yeah. I just find it so amazing watching how he works. So he, you go and you've got the, the control room at Abbey Road, obviously. And I think he was doing uh, he was doing brass when I was in there. So in the room are you know six absolute super pro session brass players mm. and he sits there with an enormous stack of kind of ring binders with the score in it and he's got a guy doing the obviously the kind of tape operators and the kind of engineers he's got a guy operating the film because you have the film is cut and it will be you know they're doing it to the picture to the, yeah right wow and uh sometimes he, on previous ones i've seen he actually will have the director of the film there as well with him he wasn't there when i went in but he will, so he'll turn the page and it'll say, you know, um, Q96. And he'll go, maybe he'll have some instructions for the for the players, but he'll be like, go and do it. And they go, and the thing comes out and it sounds perfect, extraordinary. And he'll go, oh, yes, just a little bit more in the second half. And you, number third trombone, just a little bit, you know, a bit quieter on the second bar there. And then they play it again. He goes, great. Score, 97. (laughs) It is the most extraordinary thing I have ever seen in terms of this kind of the professionalism of every single person Mm. involved. I saw saw him doing a, a guitar recording for something as well where it was, you know, four or five guitarists playing 
like weird sort of like Mexican little guitars or acoustic guitars or whatever. And this incredibly complicated stuff they were doing. And literally open the page, play it perfectly. Move on. This amazing yeah. hearing of somehow detecting these little things. And then this vast thing all then gets knitted together into this soundtrack afterwards. It's just an amazing thing to see, mm. see being done. And so, yeah. you know, different from any other kind of work I've ever seen, you know, operating, you know, I've operated in, you know, it's not like, you know, National Newspaper Newsrooms is the place I work where you mm. sort of get, but it's nowhere near that level of just everyone in the room is complete professional in the, in literally an environment built for doing that. Yeah. But then the other great thing, because it's Abbey Road, they finish... And you wander into this. You must have been to Abbey Road, and you I wander into Abbey Road. Yeah, and not even the Beatlesy Studios. Studio oh, well, we went in. You've got the you've got the piano that was it. What was it? The, the famous piano yeah. that it's all done it's on there. with all the you know the, literally just in the corner you can just play it and it sounds mad. Just everything about it. Was yeah, it is. Ex- yeah, it's still there just as it ever was, and just has been is constantly in use. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got three studios with amazing things happening in all of them. I see. I don't know how you learn to do that. I suppose if you're an incredible musician and you've got the ear and it's just a case of applying it. Yeah, it I guess the process like a... is the thing that I found really impressive, but I imagine you learn that relatively quickly. It's just mm. having the, the skill to actually... And to hear, to hear yeah. what it right is, but I suppose if you wrote it... Then yeah, and then imagining what's... It's also, I mean, it's amazing how it's all done, you know, properly. I always imagine sound film soundtrack composers would all be like sample banks and do that. And I think many of them are at certain budgets. Here's at the level where everything seems to be recorded, you know, mm. properly with the most extraordinary session musicians and orchestras and, and whoever. So. Mm. I think it's that thing. Who was I talking to? Sort of talking about the fact that, um, you know, a lot of what, um, some and I'm sure not Daniel, if, but like there are other com- you know people who are basically writing orchestral music, but yeah. aren't really orchestral arrangers. Yeah. You know, end up writing very reductive, simple things right, uh, yeah. for musicians to play. There's, it's sort of not there is so much art and kind of beauty and complexity in true, you know, true quote unquote, whatever that means, yeah. classical recording that perhaps we're losing because none of us or few of us are classically trained yeah. and, and have those skills. The other thing actually was, it was the, particularly with the brass stuff, was how it was almost a athletic performance as well. Mm. So he would be, this was recording bits of the end of, they were doing Hey Jude, and at mm. the end of the film, they do this like ludicrously overblown version of Hey Jude as part of the, you know, the plot of the thing. So he was, you know, saying to these brass players, like, you know, it just needs to be, you're at 12 now, it needs to be about 15. <laughs> and the the sort of brass players are going, okay, well, what we'll do is let's do that chunk at the very end and then we'll do these bits here. And because you can't play brass instruments at full pelt for very long. Okay. And this just extraordinary, this kind of constructing the evening so mm. that people will be able to play at the right moment and the right point. Just this levels of kind of expertise and complexity and you imagine a process that will have evolved over a hundred years mm. of how you record and how they how they work and and I'm sure there's kind of there's almost like union stuff in there as well. You know, they'll be like, we do it at this it's point. Around, and this yeah. It's like the, the those fantastic stories of Herbie Flowers. You know who Herbie Flowers mm-hmm. is? So he is the British session bass player 
who played, amongst other things, on Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed. Right. And he, on those, on those kind of classic album shows, he often pops up. Walk on the Wild Side story is that he played this bass line and then he said, oh, you know, what I could do is um, overdub. I've got this other idea I could overdub over the top of it. If you overdub something, you get paid twice. <laughs> Amazing. So my day job, one of, the, one of the interesting things in my day job is one of our clients is the National Grid. Right. Uh, and so one of the things I did this year was I went to visit the interconnector, which is the cable that runs between the UK and France at something like 325,000 volts, whatever. It's We buy electricity from France. France buys electricity from us. Different times, it's passed between the two. Oh, wow. There's actually, I think, eight cables that run under the sea. One of the things I saw that was this thing about the size of a football field, maybe, which they explained to me was essentially a low-pass filter. So a low-pass filter in your in your synthesizer or whatever is essentially a, a resistor, a capacitor, and in more old-fashioned ones, an inductor, which is like a coil of, wow, coil of wire. They were doing exactly this, but the resistors were the size of... Um, grand piano (laughs) the capacitors were the size of this shed pretty much and the inductors were about the same size and they're on like towers up and the filter was to filter off harmonics Mm. Uh, but just (laughs) absolutely the scale of the physical the the, the physicality of it of the kind we saw two we saw some while we were there some people were on a one of those crane lift things changing resistor because somebody had been walking around the site and they had heard a noise from the box the resistor was in and they were like, oh, there's something, something's a bit up with that resistor. <laughs> and the whole site as well had that, um, the hum oh, right. of like arc, no, the, no, kind of arcing, kind of right. almost like lightning, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sort of sound. So that was a quite interesting Jesus. sense of just the, <laughs> the different scale of what would literally be smaller than a fingernail if you're doing it at 12 volts <laughs> with zero amps, which is what we're doing. They're doing it vast amperages and at What would happen, I mean, if you even got near, do you know what I mean, if you came into contact with 750,000 volts? I think vaporise, I'd imagine. Like Stranger Things. Yeah. It's just like, that is wild. But of course, it, um, I didn't yeah. even know that and we shared makes, power with... Yeah, no, well, and the other thing is it has to go... So obviously our power is oscillating like that, it's mm. at 50 hertz. France is oscillating, but out of sync. Because the that other... By itself is just a great well, sentence. The other, France is oscillating. The other, the other amazing thing I learned doing this stuff with National Grid is that the whole nation is, is as has been obvious in the last week, perfectly synchronised. Yes. So, you know, the plugs here are doing 50 hertz. The plugs in Edinburgh are doing exactly the same 50 hertz. At exactly the same At exactly cycle. the same cycle. Literally, when that plug is up, the plug in Edinburgh is up. Really? Because they're all connected to generators and turbines, and the turbines are also synchronised. So in a, in a power station in Wales and in a power station in Edinburgh, 
the things are spinning at the same why do they need to, why do they need to be synchronized because if you otherwise you need the mechanism to move their phase and synchronize them because they can't be on the same circuit and out and of phase. Are, okay cuz you can imagine that would be bad. That would suddenly mean it was going up to twice the voltage or whatever it was. Right, okay. So one of the things they have, the other thing they have there is they have a thing that converts whatever, 750,000 volts AC to 300,000 volts DC that goes into the C as DC and then comes back. And the, DC. The room that did that was another extraordinary, massive, <laughs> weird room of like, that was actually very high tech. The stuff outside looks like sort of 1950s era you know, it's modern and being fixed, but it mm. doesn't look... The, the room that did that was full of this extraordinary kind of solid-state stuff, synchronised computers, and it was a strange experience. And you look into it and you couldn't tell the scale of the objects at all inside it. When you look through this window, if you take a picture of it, you literally don't know if it's a circuit board or it's a, a warehouse. Yeah, exactly. Because the whole thing was so alien to look at. <laughs> So, yeah, the National Grid is a really is an amazing. remarkable, extraordinary object that is there. They were they were talking about swapping transformers, and the transformers cost um, something like £15 million. And they they build them in the car park and then install them into the thing, and then they're just... I mean, it, the whole scale of the thing is mind-boggling. Also the fact that the National Grid never stops. You, no. know, you, can't, you can't stop it to do maintenance or something no. like a website. No, you know that to me is is crackers. And I love the the ebb and flow based on the requirements of the day. Yeah. It's the sort of human, you know, after in an ad break. Yeah. Well, back in the day when we did have, yeah. we all watched the same thing. You know, yeah. power would spike at the ad break because people would put the kettle on. Absolutely. There was a uh, in Russia, they had a um, TV talent show in the in the seventies and eighties, where voting was done by turning your switch off. And then they checked checked on the national grid the pulses and the, 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 to see how they to see which one had done well. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> you know, before be. telephones were possible and before yeah. anything else, you know, they were just like, yeah, why not? They didn't have it as turning the TV off. That would be a, no, yeah. and obviously the 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 Russian national grid did have some challenges with you know Chernobyl and stuff. Yeah, that, that old chestnut. <laughs> God. Yeah, no, I don't have questions for you. I mean, I'm trying to think. I mean, I suppose the, the, there is sort of the one thing is thinking about the sort of the decade, yes. uh, which is a scary and odd thing to think about. I mean, for myself, I've, like, if you think, oh, what did I do, you know, in 10 years? And I mean, yeah. music thing didn't exist 10 years ago. No, 10 years yeah. ago I was doing, um, I think I just bought an Arduino hmm. and was doing little sort of Arduino Connecting things together, piano player type thing, or no, much before then. I mean, it was you know, it was like yeah, before I had any real idea of using it for music. And I suppose like you didn't have obviously music thing didn't exist. I mean, in two thousand and eight and nine, that sort of ten, like that's. Am I right in thinking that is the sort of rise of make noise kind of time? I think it must be. Yeah, I think sort of you know you had like Harvestman. Tip top, yeah, and obviously dip for, and a few of the brands just kind of that was the sort of burgeoning, like it was the tens basically when it began. Yeah, so I, I, another of the people who was at CB Freaks last last week was um, Andre who did ADAC Systems, mm. and he, is it ADAC? I don't know, if or is it ADAC? ADAC? I don't know, if it's ADAC or ADAC. ADAC. Maybe it's ADAC. 
I don't think yeah. we managed. I think we managed to do it without. Well, that's very frustrating. Maybe I said it and he said it, and I didn't notice how he pronounced it. Megan Mark. Either way, um, but he, yeah, he started in I think about two thousand and nine, and I remember when I the first Eurorack thing I ever went to was um, Post Modular did an event in Vauxhall that was about two thousand and eleven, I think probably, and I remember seeing there one of his things that was a uh, i think possibly his marble physics one was there yeah. and you're like what on what on earth is that oh, that that seemed yeah, so yeah. incomprehensible and he had his wee nunchuck controller connector and you just thought this is a what it seems like such an extraordinary thing you know the idea of of something that why would somebody think of doing that it was so fascinating well so, he's and i think Adak, Adak, yeah. kind of uncredited as being one of the most innovative Absolutely. manufacturers. He, if you actually look at their modules, they are They're amazing. They are amazing. They are crackers. No one else makes things quite like yeah. they do. And some really close, like that thing, the the thing the crossfader did recently. I thought it was really smart and interesting. I yes. think it's got yeah, it's just got PC transition. PC transition. I've got one. And yeah, so it's yeah, it's really it's interesting. A, a fade, you know, it's a crossfader, and then there's two it's sets like, of voltages. Yeah. So it's similar, you know, it lives in the same it's world. It's the same sort of world as that, exactly. But it's but not it's, the same. No. Yeah. It's, it's like a DJ style cross. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But with yeah, really interesting. Um, and and his, but his past, which is what he was talking about, was he was, for the sort of decade, I guess, before that, or maybe five years before that, he was building um, kind of art installations mm. of things. So he he had this amazing one that he said was during the Gulf War, where he took over this enormous um, gallery. I think this was in Portugal. And he essentially had a, a perspex wall down one side full of balloons. And he had a uh, robotic paintball gun. Right. And a system with, like, fans and electrically powered fans. So every so often it would blow a balloon out of this space where they were all stashed up. It would float across... <laughs> It would be shot by the paintball gun. And he described how over time the whole gallery filled up, the whole back wall was covered in this kind of dripping paintball glue. Goop. Yeah. And burst rubber balloons everywhere. And the whole thing just filled up with this umshka. And so it's supposed to be like, yeah, the horror it, there of was, war. There was, some, he was, there was definitely kind. some element of the kind of critique of, of, of what was you know, happening. Yeah. But he did a lot of just really interesting. He did a, a fantastic a Pong game where you go up and you see you have like a Pong machine with a TV screen on it. And you start playing with it and you realise it's a little bit odd. The kind of physics are a bit, a bit odd. And then you walk around a wall and the entire thing is being played with physically and you're actually looking at a camera pointing down at it and it's got little blowers so it's all done with wind so it's a ping pong ball i think and it's just you you're blowing things up it was oh, amazing so he did all this fantastic just really interesting really quirky stuff yeah um before he got into doing that. what he's doing and then like you know everyone has that story of he he saw eurorack somewhere and was just, you know, I want this, but I can't really afford it. And he had mates in the same situation. So he worked out how can we make this in a way that's affordable, which is the story that goes all the way back. You know, mm. Surge was exactly that in California in the 60s, was how do I make the people synthesizer? It was cheap. Yeah. You know, he couldn't afford what Mo was doing. 
probably couldn't afford what Bukhra was doing. He was like, how do we make this cheap and affordable and use the cheapest, at the time, the cheapest possible components, which was the test gear and the simple, you know, pots and stuff. Um, and you had uh, the other people we had were Bastille, Two mm. freaks, which is exactly the same story. It was the kind of community in in Czech Republic where he was just like, I'm going to learn how to make these, and he also had an art art school background. And then his mates wanted them, and his mates could help, and you suddenly have a kind of collective of twenty people. They have their own coffee brand now. Of It was like we need coffee, and his mates were like, "Oh, I can get us. I'll coffee, roast coffee. it. I'll roast it. I guess." Yeah, and then yeah, cool. they now have, you know, Bastel coffee. They, they describe they've incubated the coffee brand essentially. The I think Bastel are the only brand that I've ever seen um, horizontally and vertically squash and compress or extend text, but in a way that looks cool. Yeah, they're the only ones who are allowed to do that. Yes, normally yeah. it's an absolute crime. Yeah, Bro- Brockman wouldn't like that. No, I don't Brockman. <laughs> I suppose if you think then ahead to where are we going to be in 10 years' time other than with old children, I guess we'll have more cool things. And I guess, as you say, there will be more cheap things. My only fear is, you know, does that make it a sustainable business for for a lot of these innovators that have created the format that we love, you know? But if you look historically, that, that is the way it goes. You know, well, I suppose it's not true. There, there have definitely been periods where a lot of people who we now love went bust. Mm. So certainly the 80s when Moog, Dave Smith and Moog and all those people yeah. went bust because because essentially Yamaha, yeah, you know, and digital. Because the X7. But then it wasn't the cheapness. It was, the, it was much more useful and sounded better. Mm. you know for for any of those musicians mm. um and they did all go bust for a long time and they they then came back but i think if you look at you know i do i do keep coming back to guitar pedals where you have these very parallel you know in guitar pedals you have the cheap stuff and you have boutiques and those boutiques seem to have been running for kind of 15 20 years now you know and i don't see that they are disappearing mm. i'm not I mean, i'm not that close to that industry but yeah. they seem to still be certainly Roland's certainly, never went out of business people didn't stop buying boss pedals because no. Behringer do cheap clones of them no and but equally the the boutique companies in the US and elsewhere who are hand making stuff hand painting stuff putting stuff together and often coming up with really interesting weird different ideas because it's not it's not all fuzz boxes in, in <laughs> guitar yeah. pedal world um you know they are able to sell 350 pound pedals often in the same store that sells 30 pound pedals mm. so so that that world works of the many people making Eurorack modules i would imagine an awful lot of them are not making money not least because it's not their main job and in some ways they are competing as well so there's a difference between trying to run a business and employ you know the way someone like make noise you mm. know, will employ a bunch of people and i imagine pays their health care and looks after them they do. And has significant costs and yeah. there's a real real building and all of that stuff and somebody saying i'm going to send off to china for a few boards and i'm going to sit them together in my my bedroom yeah and Sorry, i am you know i am sort of better than Better than them because I'm able to sell them cheaper. And you're like, well, obviously you're able to sell them cheaper. The um, on that front, I had an email from Tony Rolando at Make Noise because 
I discovered a, a talk by Tom Herb about designing oh, yeah. the herb verb, yeah. which ironically had really reverby sounds. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's like the delicious. Uh, but I basically, he was wearing a lapel mic, but it sounded horrific. Yeah. And so I downloaded it and fixed it and have re-uploaded it. And actually, they're letting oh, me fantastic. release it. So it will be, you know, it will have been out when you remove the reverb. I, well... In fairness, no. You can remove reverb to a certain extent right. with RX, but I, I, no, I fixed the lapel mic because the lapel was hard panned left. Oh, okay. I and see. was was very low. There was quite high sort of signal to noise. Okay. A uh, noise to signal, and so I just denoised the that yeah. Isotope RX, which is uh, maybe that's something that's come out in the last ten years. Yeah. Is a work of voodoo and yeah. art. Like it is incredible. Um, well, that and um. What's the, the other one? The audio pitch Melodyne, Melodyne. and that stuff. Melodyne. Which... Yeah, I remember like that was I read that on the music thing where yeah. it's like, you know, the, the magic has finally happened. Yeah, I was like, this is in, this pitch. feels like something that is actually fundamentally against the laws of physics. <laughs> yeah. And I remember at the time it did feel like you couldn't really see how how you would be able to separate out mm. polyphonic sounds. I suppose spectral editing is, and, you know, and that's, that's, yeah. and it was interesting to me to learn that, that, you know, Isotope RX has a spectral view and you can yeah. kind of see the sound and you can paint out the things you don't want. Yeah. But the, that is actually licensed by to Cedar, who are uh, relatively unknown, but Cedar make um, oh, yes. very high-end professional denoising. Yeah algorithms and systems and bits of hardware you know and, and yeah. used as used yeah. by the bbc you know they'll yeah. have yeah. one of the you know equivalent sound devices and then yeah. one of those and you can it is astonishing and i will use rx on this to to denoise it yeah. but um but the point was that that at the end of tom's talk and it's, which is fascinating because he talks about the design of algorithmic reverb and um, you know, people like Michael Gerzen, who developed Ambisonics. Yeah. We are currently recording this with an Ambisonic yeah. microphone. And it's um, it's fascinating. Like, the whole thing of algorithmic reverb is is a real dark art. And it's, yeah. you know, there's Sean Costello from Valhalla DSP, yeah. which I've linked to on that video. If you watch it, yeah. Sean has done another hour yeah. talk about... it's, And it really is fascinating, because it's making something that is r- realistic, but not. It's yeah. like... It, it's like it's like an impressionistic reimagining of what actual it's the psychological effect of the reverb. Yes. But then it, I always the feel was, is yeah, what he, was, Costello talks about. Does it feel right to me? And it was very interesting when the uh, convolution reverb came along. Mm. That is actually what it would sound like. Yeah, often not nearly. It's not as, good enough. It's just not quite well, right. For example, <laughs> I used um, I used this very microphone. I was like, I need to do some tests with the NTSF one. So I was like, I, I went and recorded a choir. It was so it's in in like Massam Church. Massam is this little beautiful rural town near where I live, um, and so I recorded with one microphone this choir Christmas choir performance, yeah. and it's it is amazing that like, using the little plug-in you can spread and stuff. Yeah. But what I was particularly interested in was rotating the mic backwards, so right. I could hear the reflection. I want to hear the re- what does the report yeah. from the back of the church coming back into the microphone sound like? Yeah. And it's not nearly as reverby as you want. It's, no. it's only a relatively short tail. It's only like, it's maybe two seconds or something, or a second. Uh, so why Even is it that a, when you're there, it feels so Well, I don't, I think, rich. I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, there is the, you know, you are obviously hearing sound from a completely 360 degree perspective. When you're yeah. listening to a choir, you're hearing some of the direct sound, you're hearing side of top, 
back reflections, all yeah. of, and all arriving in your ears at different times. And what was amazing was when you when you have the plug-in, so like the road plug-in, you can sort of create little directed sounds and so you can point at something like yeah. a piano and, and then have a duplicate and you can build a sort of stereo image out of it. And can you automate that? Can you, yes. Like so a VST or something? Yes, you can, so you oh, can wow. move it and point it at different times. Yeah. But then what you can simply do is create a very wide stereo image. Yes. So it's using almost all the sides and the stuff. Yeah. And that does create that, like, intense sort of enveloping kind yeah. of you know surround which is wonderful but um that but, oh, it does remind me of that you know another thing that has really become more prominent in the last year is that asmr stuff yeah you know that as a as a trend i can't say i've been participating in it i, I, listen to I, much, I but, actively hate but the sound of a, amplified whispering it is so a really extraordinary and very real thing yeah know, yeah that that, that if you had said, you know, if we had said two years ago, oh, one of the big, you know, YouTube trends will be close-miked people talking. I would have said, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> because the internet is a weird-ass place. And that's, so absolutely right. But but no, exactly, yeah. It's, and, it's, and it has, for some people, a physiological response. Yeah, absolutely. Which is interesting because it's a physiological response which has only now been able to be activated via technology that, yeah. that was needed to activate. I mean, I don't know if they get the same thing if you can. In, well, into the, their actual ears. It's a bit like the the singing. That there's that whole story, history of um, how recording technology has changed. Music, which one of the biggest examples of it is the crooners, where it used to be as a singer you had to project, mm. you had to fill a room. Yes, and they would record someone like um, an Italian singer who was the greatest kind of hit of this this you know the seventy eight era, mm. and then. Because he could project, and it you know came out of the the horn sounding yeah, really like really rich. Yeah. But then when electrical recording was invented, you could get right up to the microphone. You yeah. could talk very close, and you could you could almost whisper into the microphone. And this whole new era of people emerged from that. Mm. You know, it was up to Frank Sinatra, but it was people before him where it was a just a completely impossibly different and I think you then thing we then have um is it Billie Eilish Billie yeah I, that's her name yeah but her productions are quite I feel like they're post ASMR right productions I was talking to Adrian Utley yeah. um, um, but he you know he was talking about he's like you know A he thinks it sounds fucking great and it yeah. does sound incredible of course and yeah. there's some amazing songs but it's it's the way in which they are done Feels like she is fully exploiting the the close miking thing, which is obviously it's been around for seventy years. Yeah, because it's it's never quite sounded like this or been this pronounced. Well, I I wrote a piece, must have been, I think it was ten years ago. I wrote it. I think it was certainly two thousand and nine. I think I wrote it. That was about. It was called "Why Do All Records Sound the Same?" Yes, and it was for Word Magazine, which was very very many years ago. But one of the things talked about in that is is that that thing of just how peculiar close miking is and talking about a record like Johnny Cash, those recordings that, that with Rick Rubin, where it's like you are literally squatting on Johnny Cash's lap with your ear in his mouth as he as he croaks out, you know, and it sounds incredible and is an extraordinary thing, but is is a million miles away from the experience of being in a room when mm. the band is playing. And one of the questions that I never got a really clear answer to that was, 
why it is that you can, if you hear a band playing live, like say you walk past a pub, you can always tell oh, that it's a live, that it's a live band. band. And I don't know I what the signal is. I don't know what it is that you're hearing that's different. I have actually wondered about that. Because yeah. I've recognised that too, like, that's live music. I think it's, uh, I think it's to do, my pet theory is it's to do with compression and production. Yeah. It's, it's that live music is inherently not compressed and mastered often. I mean, yeah. obviously sometimes they do have a kind of mastering chain that is being applied, but but there is a sort of dynamism to live music. Do you think if you walk past like the O2, where you've got a really, really professional band going through essentially a studio desk, I wonder if that actually does sound like live music. I wonder if you have the same effect. Mm. I wonder if you're wandering around the edge of the OT and you can't see what's on the band on stage. I wonder whether you can tell whether it's a live band or not because it's so mm. produced. I bet you. I think you probably. But it's a very pronounced thing. It's a very. And I, I would say also thing. there's for a degree there's an element of sparseness to live music because people are not able to, you know, when you know, I've been in this situation, you know, where I've been I've come to play with a band. Yeah. And we're doing a version of something that was originally done on Pro Tools. So there's yeah. all of these bells and whistles that you just don't include in the live yeah. version or you reinterpret. And but so then, I would then, say therefore, it was, it's simplified. But I would say it was true, even very acoustic. I, I would imagine a recording of a folk band playing mm. and a folk band playing you would be able to tell the difference. I, but I don't know. I, I haven't, I've never, I never just, studied it or, or tried to work it I out. It's, it's, degree, it's just to do with the degree of production and yeah. the sort of the compressed. Yeah. But the, I was going to say, basically, the end of that herb verb talk, oh, yes. Tom actually tells you how much it costs to make an herb verb yeah. and how much profit that they make. Um, and, you know, he basically, you know, he rattles off a few things. Yeah. And I sent it to, to to Make Noise. I was like, I'm putting this up just so you know. And are you okay with Tom saying this? And even in the video, yeah. hilariously, he does say, like, please don't tell Tony that I said this. It's on record. And I've yeah. sent it to Tony, and Tony, Tony's totally fine with it. He's yeah. like, don't worry. It's like, yeah. I don't know. You know, we don't need to hide our... No. You know, no one should be in surprise that we have to make money. That's yeah. literally what we exist to do. But he said the numbers... It was interesting. He says um, his numbers are not accurate, but I don't think it's any reason not to publish. He says, for example, his costing on the parts is close. And yeah. I think this is an important point because I think when people think about the cost of things, yeah. it's very hard for people to go beyond what they see with their eyes. No, exactly. They cannot see the other things. And what Tony says, he goes, but he does not account for the front-end cost of R&D Yep. Per unit cost for labour and for assembly and for quality yep. control, the operations cost for technical support, warehousing, shipping of parts, employee health care, benefits packages, rent, utilities, yeah. and most importantly, what we pay Tom for his yeah. work coding the DSP. And I like he says, the cost of Tom is extremely significant, but well, well worth it. Yeah. And then he goes on to say, oh, actually, I forgot to add education, making manuals, making yeah. YouTube tutorials, and marketing, social media, YouTube, trade shows, synth events, yeah. ads, you know, which someone just goes, it, it only costs you £15, why are you charging exactly. me 100 I mean, it's bastard. the same with, with books. You <laughs> know, like, it's you really can... transparent in books because you can, go, you can go online to an online book publisher and you can see how much it costs to produce these. Which is like about about three or four pounds a copy for the printing. Yes. If you send somebody a PDF and three or four pounds, 
they will give you a book. You know, yes. obviously, it's a little, there's a little barrier to scale, but it's not actually very high because they're all digitally printed. But, you know, it would if I was actually charging any kind of a day rate for doing these, it would take a very, very long time to pay that back. And then you've got to pay Thonk yeah. to have it in their warehouse, to put up the money to print them, to put them in boxes to send them out and you know people like i think steve was having this this challenge of if you order parts from from mouser from the u.s mouser from the u.s they will if you spend more than 50 quid they'll ship you to them for free Hmm. and it is an amazing service and you know they will they will they will they also cover the tax and the whole thing so you you pay you buy your 200 quids worth of parts, and it arrives, and the tax is covered, and it arrives in about three days. Mm. And people will go to Steve and say, well, why can't you why can't you do that? And the point is they are a vast multi-multi-million pound mm-hmm. company Millions that will negotiate with, with USPS, and they will have an enormous deal with them. And also, they may absolutely hate your orders. <laughs> you know, your 200-pound order may be absolutely useless for them, and essentially they're doing it as marketing. So if you happen to end up working in a big company and you're ordering 10,000 quid a time, yeah. then, then it's worth, worth their it's while worth getting you on board. Yeah. But it's, 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 it's very difficult for, you know, and it's one of the reasons you see businesses fail is because it is very difficult for people to understand the costs of things. Mm. You know, they will feel like the other side of it is when people start saying, oh, I need to do this properly. You know, so they look at a business and say, well, to do this business, I need to pay myself this much, I need to have this much facilities and this much and this much. And it obviously ends up not making them any money at all mm. because it, it's a difficult thing to be in. Yeah. But the idea that you look at it and say, well, this has got, you know, you know, on here, there's like, I don't know, a quid's worth of components, if that. Yeah. You know, these are really cheap basic components. And even these boards themselves are not very much. It's the physical stuff but then all of that it's also all of that stuff around the tom it. yeah well, there is a tom, tom in here there's as well there's always toms in all of this stuff <laughs> but i get the sense you don't really pay yourself very much for the like no i i now actually it's a very it's a very incredibly lucrative hobby oh good you know so <laughs> i do so i do get i do get paid um royalties by steve and we do sell a decent amount of stuff mm. so it is a if i was job, if i was trying to live off it and do it as I do it now, obviously I'd only be doing an hour a day, but it wouldn't be a terribly good living. It would yeah. be you would be taking a serious just pay about uh, certainly taking a serious pay cut, but but equally would I, be would be, I guess I would be yeah, you probably would but 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 you know I'm in quite an unusual position because I have that structure and the way that's arranged. And also because the vast amounts of work that Steve does and the Thunk does and the enormous reputation that he has that I get a little bit of that kind of help along the way. Mm. But certainly in terms of trying to make it as a business, as a career, it's a very difficult, you know, Mm. to see how you would do that. And you look at someone like um, uh, Paul Schreiber at Synthetech, who I, I believe kind of retired after a long career where this was his sort of side project and is now doing it full time but in his retirement, mm. and I imagine and he's become a lot more productive since that happened and is producing a lot of, you know, beautiful and expensive things that I imagine sell sell pretty well. Um, but it's not if your if your entire marketplace is ten thousand people yeah. 
or even 50 does. And that, again, coming back to Behringer again, if Behringer can get vast numbers of, of cases into people's hands, and if they reduce the price of modules by half, but double or triple the, the audience, maybe we will all be selling modules for, for 100 quid and making a profit on it because we're selling three times as many. Yeah. I mean, there's no, it's not... It's not inconceivable that could work, and I imagine the I've never actually modeled out those costs in that way. But maybe the thing does just become a much larger market, and people are able to because if suddenly you started selling three times as much of everything, it would significantly change the economics mm. of it, but not that much. It's interesting, like with these, with this thing, with the um, this control module, I showed it to Steve, he's like, Great, oh, we'll order some, we'll order. Yeah, you know, two hundred and fifty of them. I was like, it's a bit of a weird module. I don't know. If, I don't Do you know think if that's people, too many. Like, well, I said I don't know. If, I, I, I I feel like people will look at it and either they will go, yes, that's great. I definitely want one of those. I understand it. Or go, what on earth is that? It's like it's a you know. Well, they'll say, can you do a four HP version? And you're like, yes, you could, but, but that's what the literally point not what this is. So it is a curious. So I was like, well, let's look at the numbers and see. If, and I think we'll probably do like a hundred or one hundred twenty-five of them yeah. when we do them first. And just see if anyone does want to. And it's it's a sort of coincidence of the costs for that. There's not that many economies of scale because essentially these, for, for various reasons, like the pots are a reasonably fixed price. Right. Um, so no buying 500 or buying... That's not where you get quantity yeah, breaks. Buying, or it would be, you know, sometimes it makes a big difference. This, it doesn't. But equally... That does obviously cut the potential revenue in half. You know, we actually will make drastically less money. I just don't want to risk putting something out that you have a big stack of them filling up the mm. warehouse. And so, so it's interesting to you know to start thinking it through in that way. You know, try and try and work out will something be a success. And and if you if you were doing this on a larger scale, where you're actually saying we have to decide are ten thousand people going to buy this or a thousand people going to buy this, and it's all of our livelihood to forget it wrong, which is the kind of decisions that Moog have to make, um, that Dave Smith has to make. Those are really big, serious, difficult decisions. And that is another thing that really doesn't affect Behringer. I was going to say... Behringer about- chuck out a synth that nobody really fancies... They sell them off cheap and then... They have so many on. aspects to their business. Like yeah. the synth thing is... For yeah. them, I think is a very small deal. But unfortunately, I, the only thing that concerns me is if, for example, what happens... If, comma, when, question mark, there's a little Behringer module with a knob and a and a 16 selector switch and yeah. a, a clicky, clicky thing. What, yeah. what then? Like, And would that mean that you just, like, don't release any of this? Because you just, what's the point? Oh, yeah. It becomes infinitely, you know, those risks that you're but talking I think about for me, become those far are, more pronounced. Yeah, for me, if, those are much more. But then, or it's, you know, if that then... But I think we are in an unusual position because... Thonk has a very, very specific audience, which is DIY. Mm. You know, and I, and I think it's interesting how we haven't particularly felt any need or goal to, you know, we, we've never sold anything in, um, you know, ready-made. Yeah. Um, even still, there's no ready-made. Still, no, change. and there's a there's an interesting story, which I'll tell you once the microphone is off, <laughs> that has caused us to need to produce a bunch of ready-made stuff. 
and it's quite a faff. You know, we literally have to find find the makers around the country and go, can you make me some of these? You need to actually um, pay people to, like, put them we together. We literally have... You can't have just... Last, isn't there a big machine you can just put it in, in and the it last spits couple out of weeks, a polished, we've tested been module? paying a bunch of people to make some modules because we've needed them for something. And, you know, but, but in terms of as a business, we're not... Well, you know, Steve would know better than me, but I think when we look at it, we have a niche that makes sense. And there's no particular need or urgency for us to, you know, we obviously thought about doing ready-made stuff mm, years ago. Talking about it for ages. But it doesn't especially feel like it's particularly... It's not like, not like anyone's struggled to get hold of one of these things. Yeah, if you want one, you can get one. And it's quite nice having that community of people who make them. Mm. But it, but it's not like we're suddenly going to sell 10 or 20 times as many. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we are bigger fish in a very specific sea. Whereas if we were trying to compete with those, you know, the market's not that much bigger, I don't think. I, I don't know, but it, it's interesting that that model, which I think Funk has, which is a very specific community and a very specific audience, and you're trying to do something that makes sense for them. You know, we're not going out and trying to do big, get our stuff sold in Guitar Center or in, you know, Amazon or whatever. Mm. So it's slightly different. Well, good luck. <laughs> this is the next 10 years. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you. Beep. So, that was me and Tom in Hearn Hill in the shed after I'd had no chicken. I hadn't had chicken that time. That time... Tom, in fact, gave me a delicious ham and cheese sandwich in which to aid my hangover. And they have got wicked good delis in Hearn Hill because that was tasty ham and cheese. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for the ham and cheese. Thank you for the conversation and the cup of teas. Um, I wish you all the best for 2021. 2021? Yes. Well, that's when I'll next talk to you, um, if we're all still here. Now, I'm the whole thing that Tom mentioned about getting up at six o'clock in the morning, that piqued my interest, my ears, because actually that is something that I have attempted to do. I found that incredibly difficult recently owing to the tiny little beautiful human who disturbs our sleep during the evenings. Um, So it's really hard to get a proper night's sleep. But note that Tom did so much stuff, developed a whole book, developed loads of modules, really interesting ideas. And what he did was get up at six o'clock in the morning If you don't have a small child, I highly recommend it. The times that I have been able to do that successfully, and I have been a couple, in fact, last podcast and parts of this podcast I have worked on at six o'clock in the morning. It's incredible. I always consider myself to be a night owl. I don't think that's true. I read the Why We Sleep book and people who are night owls, that is a genuine biological imprinted thing. They really do not get tired until later and they really do not, are not ready to get up when everyone else is getting up. It's actually a huge disadvantage to an enormous part of the population because school and work is totally gamed around a getting up early principle, which completely doesn't apply to a whole section of society. And it's biological. They cannot do anything about it. I am not one of those people. I do not actually need to sleep in the problem is that as a creative person i'm sure you are exactly the same is when it's late and everyone else has gone to bed 
you're just like, ah, this is my time. Open Ableton Live, pick up my synths, plug in my CV cables. Now I'm going to do some music. And then suddenly before you realize it, it's four o'clock in the morning. And then you're like, oh, crap. Like, I actually have to get up in the morning. So the trick is, though, you have to go to bed at like 11. If you can go to bed at 11, and you should apparently get eight hours sleep, that is important. But, you know, 10, 11, if you can do that, then get up at six o'clock. There's a couple of like gadgets that, I mean, we're all about the gadgets, right? So I got the Fitbit Flex 2, the Fitbit Flex. You might have noticed it in one of my videos because uh, I was wearing it. Basically, the Fitbit Flex is quite good. A, it is a step counter and it reminds you to get off your fat butt. But also, it is a silent alarm too. It will silently on your wrist and it's got like a five-day battery life. So it's not like an Apple Watch that you won't be wearing because you'll be charging it. It's quite good. And you can get them secondhand for like next to nothing. But the other thing which I bought, which is completely ludicrous, but there's nowhere else I can talk about this. And if I speak to my wife about it, she thinks I'm a freaking crazy person. I bought this thing called a Lumi Sleep Mask. Illumi. Yes. I-double-L-U-M-Y Smart Sleep Mask by a company called Sound Oasis. Um, and it is a totally crackers concept that I invented in my mind and then <laughs> discovered someone has actually made it. And basically, it's a sleep mask and you put it on and it blacks out your vision, obviously. But it contains a little circuit board and a, a set of LED lights. And as you're probably guessing what happens, you program it and it beams light in your eyes at your chosen time. So it's designed to wake you up with light, which is the best way to wake up. So if you do live alone or you live with a groovy partner who doesn't mind you blaring like sunlight into the room at six o'clock in the morning, by all means, get one of those like bedside lamps. But if you have a child and a wife who has probably been up several times tending the child during this the night, she will not appreciate me working up when she doesn't need to be. So um, the sleep mask is good. Like, it's I mean, it okay, although it kind of slips around a bit in the night um, and so doesn't totally stay at your eyes. But when it does, it does work. Like, you've got beaming, like, white light in your eyes and you just, it perks you up. It really does wake you up. And it's because if you read the Why We Sleep book, you've got, like, this little nerve that's, a spacey strapped to the back of your eyes and that takes a little tap from the eyes and says, are the eyes getting light? If so, turn off all of the sleep mechanisms and wake up human. And when it's dark, the reverse happens. So you should be in the dark to sleep and you should be, if you look at light, it will wake you up. So yes, this is all a very complicated way of saying it is amazing. If you can do it, you've got like this unfettered at least hour. You know, you can get a lot done, like an hour and a half, two hours best and then it's like your time it's like the evening time you're just completely free to do your thing it's great and you're also fresh i don't know maybe i'm old but like staying up late there's just a point where you're like i'm tired i've been at work all day long i had dinner i've like we've bathed we've done all of this stuff and it's just like it's i'm tired do you know what i mean and so as tom says you get your evenings back you can actually like guilt-free like play a computer game and do something it's just like it's good so i'd highly recommend it if you can so that's it buy things you want from any company you like do the thing stay safe enjoy making electronic music 
somewhere in your hole, maybe at six o'clock in the morning. Thanks to our sponsors, Signal Sounds. Thanks to Tom for your time. Go and buy Music Thing Things. There's wonderful kits, there's new things coming, but there's obviously the glorious Turing machine, the radio music, and a whole manner of other things. The Klee Clay-inspired Volts expander for the Turing machine. I really need to dig into that. That's some good stuff. Go buy his things. He's a good man. He deserves support. Support cool things. And now I say thank you for your attention. I'll try not to be so long on the next one. You're the best.